This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the show. Dr. Matt here. Buckle your seatbelt. It's uh, Goof Off Day. This is the day we hold dear to our heart. Goof Off Day. It's the day, folks, you just get to step back from the rigors and pressures of everyday life and goof off. Many would say, well, what's different about today than every other day? Today we get to do it without any problems, without it's getting sanctioned. in trouble. Yeah, it's a sanctioned goof off day. We're, it's, it's so out of control today, we're watching television in the studio. Whoa. Well, I'm not, but... You guys, they're, they're are watching working the cooking with show. buttermilk and baking soda <laughs> on BYU TV. Hey, happy goof off day! Uh, interesting today. Uh, I'm sure there's no connection. I think they're starting to they're they're about to vote on the um, the big bill, the big health care bill. That's on Thursday. Trump, uh, what's it called? Trump Care. No. Trump cares. Trump no, no, cares. No, 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 no. The White House says absolutely not. No, well, no. It's Trump's now. No, no. It was Obama's. Now it's Trump's. Trump care. Well, it was. It's Paul Ryan's. Ryan the White House keeps trying to say if you're going to call it something, call it Ryan Care. Oh, or that, let's, that let's doesn't you, have the same zinger. Let's use the actual name of the bill, not we name it after the we president. We didn't call it Pelosi Care. No, we called it Obamacare. Well, yeah. So we, we will have to call this. Trump care. And boy, the, the they're getting restless on the Hill. Yes. The conservative wing, the Freedom Caucus. Is that what they call them? That's like the the orthodox conservative, conservative. sort of extreme sort of wing. Yeah. They're not liking the bill. Not so them's got fighting words now. They've gone so far to say don't hold the vote. Yeah. You, it, you're, it's not going to work. Don't look, hold the vote. You'll look it'll dumb. Look bad, yeah. So this is all part of the art of the deal. Is it? Apparently they're making a deal. Well, he is the deal maker. Yeah. Wait. Huh? That was the name of his book. Yeah. You mean, yeah. Yeah. It's the name of the book. And everyone's using it against him now. Hmm. Pretty good. Pretty good stuff. Well, they've all read the book. Yeah. I mean, Paul Ryan's been walking around Capitol Hill holding the book under his arm. Rand Paul just quoted the book in an interview on MSNBC. It's great. Like... There's yeah I've read the art of the deal and now we're about ready to negotiate we're ready to negotiate sure the votes in a day yeah. but we're ready to negotiate and, and they just amended the thing with a bunch of new additions yeah. to try to make it more palatable right. and no apparently one knows what those yeah. are but apparently it's not quite there yet yeah it still looks like Obamacare so this is exciting which is again why we're celebrating Goof Off Day okay great so um, we'll talk about I'm sure in the news more about this incredible. Um, Standoff and a potential standoff. It hasn't happened yet, but the standoff will be tomorrow. It's but it's looking crazy. We're in pre-standoff mode. Plus, Gorsuch is uh, continuing. His hearings continue today. Yeah, they're very interesting. A if, lot of people are like, "Wow, you watch him? It's mesmerizing." It, I, it, he sits there. He's yeah. very. He answers all the questions. Yeah, he's not really. Not, I mean, he he doesn't answer because he can't. Well, he answers he's, what he can. He's weird because he's a sitting judge. He's a sitting yeah. judge, so judges can't. Comment even more so than if he was just like some senator, he, he could comment. He, he doesn't more. want to bias himself yeah. for some case he yeah. may hear in a year by yeah. saying that he has some opinion on. That's something. a sweet position to be in because yeah. he doesn't have to throw himself out there too far. It's kind of nice. And certain Congress people are you know steaming because they want answers. 
Give me answers. So uh, we'll get to the news headlines there. We're also going to be talking about the psychology of white-collar criminals. We have a guest coming on that wrote a, a really substantial book about he, – he interviewed 50 white-collar criminals. Hmm. And he found out uh, some pretty interesting things about how they think. What motivates them to do these things? Yeah. And there's, there's one weird problem with white-collar crime that's different than like a mugging. In a mugging, you see the victim. Mm-hmm. In a white-collar crime, a lot of times you don't see the victim. It's all on paper. So it doesn't hit you as hard, which may explain why we're so hard on our listeners because we don't see them. Right. You know, so it's kind of like a white-collar crime. Oh, wow. Radio broadcasting. That's an interesting way. There to is some criminal activity happening during this show. Yeah, like criminal, but like not like, not like, not like the police need to come. But many would cr- claim it's. Mm, I'm sure if the police did come, they'd find something. Well, I'm sure it would be you'd be arrested for stealing candy from students here. And if we're going to talk about it. Hmm. I don't know if we're going to talk about. I that. disagree with that. And at some point, we need to get to uh, Elmo. Had a HR exit interview. Elmo did. Yeah, really. Yeah, because you know they're saying, well, you know, if we're going to cut the budget, we can't keep all these puppets. So they had to let Elmo go. They had an exit interview. He's their top performer. He didn't take it well, didn't he? Did he throw a fit? Well, you know, did security escort him out? Oh, this is exciting. Okay, well, this is all straight ahead. I think Big Bird conducted the interview, didn't he? Ah, Big Bird. Never trust a person with tiny, tiny little arms. That's it. Or wings. wings. Let's uh, head to the news. Terry, what's going on around the rest of the country? Apparently, President Trump was speaking Americanese when he claimed without proof that he was wiretapped by President Obama. This mm-hmm. according to CNN commentator and Trump surrogate Jeffrey Lord. He said this on Monday. I, I was on a, a radio talk show in Birmingham, Alabama today, the Richard Dixon show by name. And we were talking about the tweet about uh, wiretapping and all this sort of thing. And the host said to me, that he is talking to his audience, and he says, you know, we speak Americanese out here, and we know what he meant. What he meant was the FBI was, or somebody was surveilling him, that's what he thinks. He says, we get what he's saying. He says, and all you fancy people up here are, are you know, trying to take this in another direction. Jeff, what you're it arguing, is, then, is the FBI and the Justice Department are mistaken for taking the president literally, because they don't speak... Uh, Americanese. Americanese <laughs> because they're so uh, part I mean, of Washington that I, I, they are actually taking well, the president. I, 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 I have to tell you, this is such a classic Washington story. He blamed, do, you, do, you he blamed, the do you believe this president of the United States is a congenital liar? No. Do you believe he has lied repeatedly? But what do you mean by lied repeatedly? So there was like 10 people on that panel. Yeah. Nine of them said he lied except for Lord yeah. because he's his... Surrogate. Right. But what do you think of that? Americanese. Is that a new way we well, can go with this? Or? I think, I think, no. Okay. <laughs> but here's, I think, the difference, and this is maybe what he may have been getting at. His followers don't care. Yeah. His followers don't care because he, that he, he speaks a little truth. Yes. And they'll read into the little truth and make it real truth, and they'll read into the big lie and make it no lie. But I think the point is they don't care. But what he's, what is happening is more than half the country cares, that 60% of the country cares. Right. 37% don't care. My thought is you can read into people yeah. that way. Are they literal or not? When you know who they are, 
Right. When you don't know who they are, everything matters. Right. Exactly. So, eh, whatever. Yeah. So, Americanese. That's the new that's a great talking word. point there. President Trump warned House Republicans Tuesday that a vote against the GOP-backed American Health Care Act could jeopardize their chances of winning re-election in the 2018 midterms. He goes on, I honestly think many of you will lose your seats in 2018 if you don't get this done, Trump said, in, in an attempt to rally fence-sitters ahead of the scheduled vote on Thursday on the Obamacare replacement plan. Trump apparently predicted of Republican support for propo- or the proposal they could gain 10 seats in the Senate. Wow. Which would be huge because then they wouldn't well, have to get their 60. Yeah, and then they wouldn't have to listen to any of this. The House Freedom Caucus said it has enough no votes to defeat the bill, and apparently Trump's comments Tuesday didn't exactly change their minds. Hmm. So Supreme Court nominee... Uh, Judge Neil Gorsuch on Thursday, on Tuesday refused to comment on how he would rule on President Trump's immigration executive order should he be confirmed and should he, the travel ban make it to the Supreme Court. During the second day of his Senate confirmation hearing, Gorsuch uh, maintained he, it would be grossly improper for him to give any indication on how he would rule on any case, especially one currently being litigated. Gorsuch said he never promised Trump he'd overturn Roe versus Wade. He goes, that's just not what judges yeah. do. Yeah, you don't do that. He also said if... He would have walked out of the yeah, room. he would have walked out of the room if that would have been the uh, something he was asked. Right. Finally, Canadian diplomats have been told to stop using life-size cardboard cutouts of Justin Trudeau as pro- pro- promotional events. So apparently there's Canadian uh, embassies and they have kind of a, hey, come get to get no Canada events. And they have this cardboard cutout of the president of oh, the country, really? and people come over and pose with it. The government's like, eh, we may not want to do that. <laughs> yeah, let's not be doing that, kids. Says, we are aware of instances where our mission in the U.S. has decided to purchase and use these cutouts. Uh, they've been asked to stop it, basically. How much do you think a cutout of a world leader, say oh, about, you know, uh, life-size, six life feet size, tall? I'll, I'll, go with, I'll go with $180. Ooh, Jeff? Uh, twenty dollars if you go to Kinkos. Is that even around anymore, Kinkos? Um, I don't, I don't know yeah. anymore. Mm. It's like FedEx Kinkos yeah. now. Yeah, uh, yeah. I'm, it's going to be more than a hundred dollars. It's one hundred forty-seven dollars, <sighs> yeah, seventy-nine cents. Place yeah. in Pittsburgh will make them for you. Oh, except I win because you yeah. were over. You were over. He went low. Price is right. I could have bid a dollar and I would have been right. You $1. know what? I'm going to get you a cut out of me. Just have to, take, to take home. Don't we have those huge? Po- oh, those are more those are posters. posters. Yeah. But I, I want a life size of me. Okay. Oh, I have. There's one of me somewhere. But I'm gonna. I want to. You want to get one for me? Is that me. what you said? Yeah. But then Terry's gonna get me some darts to accompany that. We'll just bring dart guns. Wow. It'll be awesome. <sighs> it's kind of rude. Yeah. Hey, what's going on with the NBA and the Earth is flat? Yes, this is interesting. What is the deal? Because apparently. Now everybody's in on it. So there's a point guard for the Cleveland Cavaliers. His name is Kyrie Irving. Mm-hmm. He came out over the uh, All-Star break, which was in mid-February, and said that uh, he was on some podcast and he was talking about how he believes the world is flat. Yeah. Now, he didn't really go into detail of why he believes that. He just thinks that everyone should look into things and form their own opinion. Like, like he has. Yes, that the world is flat. Right. Alternative facts. Then the uh, a few weeks ago on uh, TNT has an NBA kind of pre-post-game type show. Right. And Shaquille O'Neal's on there. Charles Barkley's on there. There's some other people. It's true. The earth is flat, O'Neal said. Yeah. Shaquille O'Neal, they were talking to him. They said at one point they were they showed like a picture of the full moon as they came back from commercial. 
and then they were talking about they were making some trip to Los Angeles. And Shaquille O'Neal was saying, uh, do, which, which is further, Los Angeles or to the moon? And they all just kind of looked at him and he said, he goes, well, he, and they go, what do you mean? What do you mean which is further? Of course, Los, the moon is further. Los Angeles is, is closer. It's just, yeah. come on. And he's like, well, no, I walk outside. I look up. I can see the moon. I can't see California. Yeah. I think the moon's closer. Maybe he can't see California. Now, this is a very tall Because the individual. earth is round. Yeah. Well, no. <laughs> I mean, so, maybe. So in his head, he's like, the moon's closer because I can yeah. see it. It's brilliant science. And so yesterday, Charles Barkley was on a uh, sports radio show. And he's like, Kyrie Irving went to 30 games worth of college. Because he basically was in college and eligible until the college basketball season was over, then dropped out because he went pro. He doesn't need to go to go to school. Yeah, right, 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 right. Shaquille O'Neal has a degree. He went yeah. to three years of college, came back, finished. He wants to be a. I mean, this whole like he wants to be a cop, that kind of thing's yeah. been going on for quite a while. You think so he'd understand? You this. think he'd have more no. education? But oh, he's. But is this an education thing, or do people study and find new facts? This, this, I don't know. this is how O'Neal explains it. The blank looks flat to me. He swore. Yeah. Uh, I do not go up and down on a 360-degree angle and all that stuff about gravity. Have you looked outside of Atlanta lately and seen all these buildings? So you mean to tell me that China is under us? Yeah. China is under us? It's not. The world is flat. Yeah. Or, or the idea that you have this round thing and we're somehow standing on yeah. a round thing that's How rotating. You, How does that work? You'd slide right off. Yeah. <laughs> No, there's a whole flat Earth society, and if you, yeah, you can read all about it. But uh, so, but by the way, now a professor of geology and geophysics um, at the Hall of Famers LSU at oh, yeah. uh, Oak Hills LSU, Shaquille O'Neal's LSU, yeah. um, is saying people who have a big public presence have a responsibility to be considerate of their bully pulpit when they make statements like this. This In this particular case, it's unusual and perhaps unfortunate that people should be basing our actions on the best available knowledge. Yes. Does Shaquille have an answer to what the astronauts see as they leave the orbit of Earth and they look back and see Earth? Well, then you might get into maybe some conspiratorial sort of thoughts. Yeah, that... maybe – well, maybe the glass is weird. Yeah. So it makes everything look round. Right. It's concave or something. Yeah. Hmm. Anyway, um, so just, you know, as far as we have heard, the Earth's still round. Yeah, according to the latest reporting, the The Earth is round. Earth is still round. Uh, And President Trump is still president. Yes. And doing his best. Trump care is on its way to be voted on tomorrow. (laughs) Just updating you on everything. Should they add that to the budget? Which? Trump care? Trump's proposed budget. Should they have more education on the shape and status of the yeah, earth? Yeah, I have a feeling they're going to be taking away. Yeah, probably. There's a lot of taking away for, from the budget. I kind of get the feeling that Trump thinks that the the earth is flat as well. Yeah. Might. I don't know. He hasn't Crazy. been asked. How do we know? No, let's not ask. Someone that. probably should bring that up in an let's interview. Just get the, let's just get all the questions we already have out there answered, then let's worry about the earth. This was locker room talk. Certainly I'm not proud of it. I hate it when they talk about this in the locker room. We will take a break, folks. When we come back, we're going to be talking about the psychology of white-collar criminals. What allows somebody to embezzle or steal or, you know, do whatever they have to on a level, a white-collar level? Is it different than just the average crime on the street? 
It is. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. White-collar criminals are categorized as businessmen or government officials who commit a financially motivated but nonviolent crime. Eugene Soltis uh, interviewed 50 former executives about their crimes to learn how they tick, to learn how they think in his book, Why They Do It, Inside the Mind of a White-Collar Criminal. Soltis dives deeper into the stories of these once seemingly successful business leaders, and today we have the benefit of having him with us to talk about his findings. Dr. Soltis, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you for the invitation. This is uh, this was a really a very interesting um, read, and boy, the book, by the way, is huge. Well done, Doctor Soltis. <laughs> Thank you. Very well researched. Now, there's there's a different psychology apparently of a white collar criminal and um, uh, and just the average you know mugging on the street. Is that what you learned? Yeah, there's some very different characteristics associated with white collar crime. Uh, in particular, they're not close, intimate, physical offenses. Uh, in most cases, you don't need to get near uh, or even ever know who the victim is. Um, as a result, it, it makes it easier to perpetrate, in many instances, these, these really uh, damaging offenses without ever really feeling that you're actually doing harm to someone specific. Yeah. I mean, I guess that's... That, so does, does their crime sneak up on them then because of that? Do they not even fully get how impactful this is? That's the part that it, it took me a while to really get as I spoke to many of these former executives is that they don't fully understand when they crossed the line. And I think that's genuine. It's just because sometimes the line is blurry in business. But even afterwards, they understand what they did was, was harmful in that they're now facing some serious consequences because of that, but it doesn't really resonate in their gut that they did something so terrible. Uh, take something like insider trading. I mean, it's this kind of abstract crime that you uh, undermine the integrity of the financial markets, but really in the scheme of things, if you made $50,000 from trading, it's not going to really instigate this really strong feeling that you've seemingly undermined the well-being of the entire U.S. financial system. Right. And, and they're really – they're just business people. And one of the points you bring up in the book is they real, they kind of do a cost-benefit analysis on the crime, and the cost-benefit pays off in their mind. Yeah. And a lot, a lot, of, these, a lot of these instances, yeah, it's, it's blurry. I, how I like to think of it is it's a failure of, of managerial intuition. They don't actually see the harm associated with the actions at the time. Which is really different. I mean, right now, if they drop the prohibition against murder in most towns and communities, I could still walk outside. I wouldn't be worried about a pile of people coming to run up right. and stab me. We have a natural inclination, if you're a reasonably socialized person, to not commit that kind of harm. But in the business world, where a lot of these things, you're highly incentivized, highly motivated to push it more and more aggressively, uh, with, when those, in those rules and regulations are sometimes a little bit blurry um, or can be easily overlooked, uh, that's when you can actually push ahead uh, and go go beyond this line and uh, and commit some things that are pretty damaging and illicit in the process. Now, is this how you got onto this topic? I mean, you're a business professor at Harvard, for heaven's sakes, <laughs> and now you're and now you're going to the prisons and the pokey, and you're talking to the these these people. Um, what was your what was your goal? What was your motive? What was your drive? 
Uh, so my drive was, uh, it, this started not as a research project or as an academic inquiry. Uh, rather, this started as, as a personal curiosity. I think like most people, when you look at the, the front pages of the, the Wall Street Journal or the New York Times and actually see uh, yet another one of these corporate titans, people that, you know, like many people, I looked up to a number of these individuals. Yeah. These are the people that speak at our, our university commencements that are the big donors in society and wondered kind of what the heck happened again. Uh, so this started out with just uh, one w- late one evening, sending sending uh, a, a few letters to some well-known executives, people from Enron and Computer Associates and Tyco, and asking them some just questions that were on uh, that were on my mind. And from that uh, one, uh, this was one of the first letters I received from Dennis Kozwalski, the former CEO of Tyco, mm. uh, who was convicted of embezzling over a hundred million dollars while he was actually one of the top CEOs in the country. Uh, said. Sure. Uh, I clearly have plenty of time on my hands now. Come, <laughs> come visit me, and we can chat. Wow. Did you? Were you excited to think? Okay, I'm going to go pick this guy's brain. Yeah. So in, initially, it was ex- excitement because I mean, this is someone that you've you've kind of read about for years, both in, in positive and then more recently in kind of a negative context. Uh, so it kind of excitement. But then when I pulled up to the prison, I remember this the first time, and, and this is a, a, a low to medium security, so it, it's, it's just fencing with the big barbed wire and a couple layers, and then you, you walk in. The prison's, and this is, you know, again, a, a low slash medium security. Uh, it's exactly what you expect a prison is like, though. It's, it's yeah. cold, it's dirty, it's noisy, it's really uncomfortable. And it's actually something throughout this project. I've never, I never gained, let's say, uh, a greater comfort for going to visit people in prison because it's, it's, a, it's a tough, nasty, rough environment. Mm. In fact, you, you talk about that too, where a, a lot of these people were right before they were caught doing what they were doing. They were also, you know, on the top 10 lists in magazines and they were speaking in, in big, uh, big, in big groups and they, they had a lot of accolades. They had a lot of attention. They were all, a lot of them at the peak of their career, right? These didn't seem like desperate people. No, not, not at all. I mean, some of the people that are in the book, uh, I mean, take someone like, you know, Raja Gupta. I mean, this is the former managing director of McKinsey and Company. Oh. I mean, really one of the most you know, celebrated business leaders uh, in, in the world. Uh, it really had seemingly everything going, you know, personally and professionally. And, you know, ultimately, in the end, he, 23 seconds after a Goldman Sachs board meeting, is calling up a, a billionaire hedge fund trader and divulging what he just learned at a Goldman Sachs board meeting. Mm. Um, something that's just seen is in such contradiction to a career that uh, you don't re- get to the top of McKinsey after 30 years by being sloppy. Uh, I mean, he's thoughtful, strategic throughout his entire career, but then it was able to make these these really quite compromised-looking decisions uh, after that time, which is why I think when we think about some of these challenges that executives face, they're how easily influenced we are. Uh, that if we start spending time around people with different norms and beliefs and kind of different rule books, we're going to start playing by those different norms in that different rule book. And you know, examples like his and some of the others I talk about in the book are I, really, in many ways, I look at a, a tragedy uh, to see to see what happens to these business leaders and the consequences that has uh, on all of us. Hmm. Was it when when they would act out like Raja did or others? Was it were they following someone else's example usually, or were they just innovating illegally? <laughs> 
So yeah, that's a, that's a great question. I, I think in some cases it, there, there's there's some people in both camps. Uh, sometimes it's this is just how the game is played. Uh, a lot of people, you know, some of your listeners might have heard some of these kind of recent the the LIBOR or the FX kind of rigging. Um, yeah, right. Of, uh, this kind of traders from all around the world that were literally fixing the interest rates. But this is something where, I mean, they were doing this openly over their chat to different banks. I mean, this is something, they weren't being particularly sneaky about it. I right. mean, the transcripts are all right there describing what was going on. They're joking about how they're rigging it. This is something where I think if any of us would have, you know, straight out of college, joined one of these, one of these banks, which is virtually any large bank that had one of these desks, your boss would have said, you know, when you need something moved around, you just kind of call your buddies at the other bank and you talk about it and you kind of adjust the things as needed. And that's just how this is done. Huh. It's what not only what we do at our firm, it's what all the other firms do. So you would say, oh, this is how I, this is how I work in this market. This is just how, how the game is played. So it's not surprising that you would adopt that. Um, in other cases, when I think of something like Enron, though, they were being innovative hmm. uh, and that – Every time they saw a, a, another rule or regulation that could have kind of stopped them, they sat back and said, we see that as a problem. If we think a little bit harder, a little bit more in a more clever fashion, can we figure out a way around this? And, and ultimately, that I see as their, their failure. It wasn't, wasn't a lack of ideas, but it's the fact that they never saw a stoplight a stop or stop sign and said, you know, we just need to stop here. They thought, well, let's just take a little turn, go around this, and we can go faster. Yeah, yeah. Is um, what was the total? So you had fifty people you visited and, and researched, but the, the total theft that they took was how much? Did you ever add that up? Oh gosh, so that would be. I mean, once once you put Bernie Madoff in the mix, oh, that's true. Uh, huh? I mean, you have 20, twenty billion there. That in some sense, the other ones. I mean when you start talking hundreds of millions, those are big numbers, but yeah. it just starts getting dwarfed. But the couple major Ponzi scheme individuals I spoke with, so, uh, I mean, well, you know, the, the, the kind of the three largest uh, in, in history, or four largest are Bernie Madoff, Tom Peters, Alan Stanford, uh, and Stephen Hoffenberg. Um, I spent time with all of them, and those are all in the, you know, billions, multi-billions wow. of dollars. Uh, so, it's it's Ponzi schemes that that really you could say add up. Yeah, and it's the the interesting thing about all of, just if we just took those group the the Stan, uh, Stanford Hoffen is it Hoffenberg Hoffenberg yeah Hoffenberg and Madoff just the but that was hundreds or thousands of people maybe tens of thousands of people who lost their pensions lost money lost I mean th- these few people impacted a lot of people. Yeah, I mean Hoffenberg. I mean, most of the, the notes that he was he was ultimately uh, that he was taking and that were fraudulent, they were from uh, religious organizations and uh, pension funds. Wow! Uh, in, in many instances, uh, you know, in, he thought like many other people that you know he would get out of this hole. That this was a as Madoff often said, this is a, was going to be a temporary situation where you know you you push forward. Um, but certainly, and I think Madoff is is exceptional in this regard that there was a time which he even stopped trading so any belief that he could get out of it so to speak uh was really just a an unrealistic uh, entirely unrealistic belief there there wasn't ever a chance once you actually stopped trading yeah um, most of the other ponzi schemes people are doing something uh, i could say uh, if we were going to do it in a finance class they're never going to get out of it but they could at least pretend that they could because they were moving some things around right right um, right 
Well, I guess that's that illusion um, is also maybe part of their hubris, right? That they that keeps this whole thing going, the illusion that they're going to get out of it. Yeah, I think. I mean that that helps make it, I think, a bit more comforting. Yeah. The challenge I've often faced when I think of, I mean, take someone like Madoff. I mean, I think we would all like to say we would, we would obviously never get in that situation right. in the first place. But just imagine, let's put ourselves in the position that we're already in this hole. We're already down, you know, billions of dollars. A bill, yeah. We can't get out of it. We, we, we have a day in which all our investors are calling and praising us, wanting to give us more money. Regulars are calling to get our, our expert opinions because we're one of the leaders in the market. Then that day we go home, it's Friday night, we go home to our beautiful penthouse, we see our, our lovely wife, our two kids that also work mm. in the firm, and, and you know, after dinner we retire to our office, uh, and we say, you know what, I, I, this is wrong, I, this needs to stop. I need to call you know, the FBI or the SEC to get this to stop. Most of us, I think, would say, I'll do that next week. I'll do that. Two more days with my family, with, and the next week would come and the same thing would happen again. You'd say, I, I know this should stop, but... I'll do it next week. And unless someone stops you, unless someone literally comes and pounds, uh, pounds on your door and pulls you out in handcuffs, you just kind of keep it going. Yeah. And unfortunately, I don't think this is something so exceptional about Madoff or any of these characters in the book. It's something, if any of us was to fall prey and get in that situation, I think we would, most of us, unfortunately, would probably keep it going like right, that. Right, right. We, yeah, we, would, we don't, we want to maximize pleasure, minimize pain. That's, yeah. we, we don't uh, want we to go through this. we a short run. Uh, we want one more dinner at home That's uh, right. before yeah. we're going to be locked up forever. Well, and, and then the shame and the humiliation and this supposed, you know, image you've built is going to collapse and... Oh, that's got to be incredibly Friend, stressful. I mean, all the friends, everyone that you've met, met your entire career, yeah. those are the first people. I mean, I think one thing that everyone has expressed to me is that, not to say this is a great strategy of actually figuring out who your real friends are, but when something like this happens, like those executives in my book, they find out very quickly who were their real friends and who were those friends because they were either wealthy or powerful. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure. And, and not surprisingly... 99% of the people turn out to be uh, fleeing and they yeah. never hear from again. Not your real friend. Uh, we're speaking with Eugene F. Sol- Soltis. He is a, a professor of business administration at the Harvard Business School and is the author of the book, uh, Why They Do It, Inside the Mind of White Collar Criminals. Um, interesting, interesting topic. We'll take a break. Come back. Continue the discussion. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Joining us on the phone, Dr. Eugene F. Soltis. He is a professor of business administration at Harvard Business School and author of the book, Why They Do It, uh, Inside the Mind of White Collar Criminal. And um, the fun thing about this, by the way, the book is is huge. And Eugene, I, first of all, did you visit, I guess you visited how many prisons to do this? And you ended up talking to 50, um, 50 white collar criminals, right? I, I did. Uh, so, uh, believe it or not, there were actually a couple prisons. Uh, like B- Bernie Madoff is actually the person I've spent the most time with. Uh, I mean, every Wednesday night, 7 p.m., we'd speak on the phone, hundreds of pages of letters and emails. Wow. Um, I've actually never had the chance to visit him in prison. Uh, I've got rejected from the prison, though. Uh, oh, really? Apparently, I, provi- I-, I create a safety hazard 
for the prison. Uh, I think they just well, want yeah. less visitors. <laughs> You're from Harvard. <laughs> you yeah, guys yeah, can't no, be yeah, just. I guess, you know, uh, my, my, my wife would be, be amazed to hear that. I'm the yeah. danger there. <laughs> yeah, that is amazing. Yeah, you're a threat. Um, so that's interesting. So you had a lot of interaction with Bernie Madoff. And so t- what, what, did you, like, what else shocks you in all of your learning and, and, and working with these people, uh, the white-collar criminals, really the cream of the white-collar criminal crop? What, um, what, what did you learn? What stands out? I, I think one of the things that really surprised me is the, the lack of remorse, which, which really took me a long time to kind of to resonate with yeah. me. Um, and that, I mean, when people were sent away in these positions, it, they had remorse. They missed their you know, daughter's graduation, their son's birthday, you know, their, their anniversary with their, their wife. I mean, those things really resonated. And many of them, I think, have become amazing. I see amer- amazing parents and the extent their marriage held up uh, amazing spouses uh, afterwards. But the actual crime themselves, um, it was an intellectual, it's almost like a discussion with them. And much of my time was not t- discussing their case, but was actually discussing, I would read, discuss books with them, the kinds of things I'm doing in class. And to see that it was much more of like an intellectual exercise to identify why this was a bad thing. Interesting. Or a, a, a wrong thing. And, and that's why I ultimately came to, this was, this was a, the challenge with white collar crime of how it just doesn't resonate with us the same as an as an outsider, we, we view it very much like a victim does, uh, mm. that, you know, this is outrageous. Clearly, a smart person should identify this. Yeah. Um, but the trick is, is that, I mean, we believe that we will stop if, if we know the difference between right and wrong. But I'll say we, we all do things that we know are wrong uh, to the extent we, we all speed a little bit if we're driving on right. a highway. Right. And we say, well, we're just keeping up with traffic. We know you can go 70 in a 65. That's fine. Everyone does that. Um, it, but we know it's wrong. Um, and, and so knowing the difference between right and wrong is not sufficient. What we really need is that gut feeling that what we're doing is harmful. Uh, and again, this is why, you know, we're not going to go out and stab someone even if there was no law against it. Right. It feels harmful. The trick is that in white-collar crime, and, and as I saw these executives, they don't feel it's harmful. As a result, they never got that, that kind of flashing stop sign. Um, but it, it made me think about a lot about my behavior, uh, I think, a little bit differently and how – I, like most people, you know, justify, you know, little, little, little kind of deviance here and there, going a little bit fast here, uh, that it just, why do I think that's okay, but, but not something else? Do we, um, is, is there any way, I guess, to, to change that, do you sense, to train it differently? I mean, I guess it is. It's different if I pull a knife and I threaten physical harm on you versus, you know, access your funds and, and take your funds, that's financial harm. It could be physical harm as well, but it's just, there's, yeah, there's just not this edge to it. Right. I mean, I think that one of the things that was interesting that I saw was that everyone thinks that they're kind of, they're the good guy. Right. Um, I mean, when I talk to the people that do insider trading, they say, yeah, I know some, you know, a, a little bit money was, but at least I was trying to build a firm. It's those guys that did financial fraud that are the real villains. And then you talk to people who did financial fraud, and they're like, but I was trying to build a firm, and yeah, I turned left instead of right. It's the people that did Ponzi schemes that are right. the real problem, because they didn't even want to build a firm. And then you talk to the Ponzi schemers, and they say, yeah, fine, maybe a billion dollars is lost, but that's nothing compared to the CEOs of the financial firms during the financial crisis that lost you know, tens or hundreds of billions of dollars and then aren't even in prison. And so it's always everyone, no matter who they are in my book, they can see themselves as not as the, the, the real, real bad guy. And I think that's the challenge. Actually, I gave, 
I've been doing a survey with, with uh, students from some of the top management programs, uh, uh, alumni. And one of the questions which, which I've asked is, you know, do you see yourself as an honest person in some of these surveys? Hmm. And, and not surprisingly, you know, you see 98, 99% yeah, absolutely. say yes. Um, it's actually always amazes me that there's always 1% that say no to nope. that question. But <laughs> I'm a scoundrel. 90, 90, and then I, later on in the survey, I ask a question. In the past six months, have would someone in your firm describe you have, have, having done something that would be considered dishonest or, or unethical? Now, 99% of people say they're honest people, so you would say, well, you know, one or two percent would answer. Turns out, I find around twenty twenty plus percent of people, huh. twenty twenty one percent, say yes. I've done something dishonest in the past six months. Wow! And, and, the, and these are these are not criminals. These no. are our students coming out of management programs, and that's exactly I think the challenge we face. Going to your question of how do we stop this is we we are all able to maintain this view that on one hand we're honest and, and you know thoughtful and respectful individuals, while simultaneously doing things that are sometimes a little, a little rough on the edges. And we, well, ultimately what we need to do is, is, is basically reconcile these two things. Yeah. No, absolutely. Um, well, and again, um, I, I wonder, as, as you sit with Bernie Madoff, does he does, – what's his stance on what he did? Is, is he very similar to what you're talking about? He, he just doesn't quite feel the remorse he may need to? Yeah, I mean, it, Bernie's a little bit different than really any any other person I spoke with in that he actually did know his his victims. I mean, these were family, these mm. were friends, these were members of the uh, kind of his religious community. They were in the Jewish community, um, so he's a little bit different in that regard. But but in every case, you know, he rationalizes his, his behavior um, and and the harm to his victims. So, for example, the money that was lost from the charities. I mean. One of the things that people most often point out is being like, "How could he have done that yeah. in these charities?" Um, he looks at the only reason the monies had uh, charities had any money in the first place is because they were created from these false gains earlier in time. Hmm. So, in some sense, he gave them a fake hundred dollars and then took that fake hundred dollars back. So, it was the charity never really existed in the first place. Interesting. And so he doesn't feel like he actually hurt the charity. It just he kind of lived a fake life and then he took it away. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, I mean, strictly speaking, in some instances, that's technically true, but that's a real, I'll say, that's a, that's a, that's a <laughs> bitter pill to be taking, being like, you know, you can, it, it's deception. It's it the is. Deepest, deepest well, it's Ponzi struggle. scheme by definition, right? I mean, yeah. it's, it's when, you, when you look at this, too, do you see, as a business professor, it, do, we, do we teach, are we not teaching enough um, about ethics and maybe too much about competition. I actually think we, we make ethics too easy, is what I will oh, say, do we? Okay. in the classroom. And that, you know, most of the time, you know, whether it's corporate training uh, or, or in a business school classroom, what generally happens is you, you bring people a, a case uh, of some, quote, challenging situation, and you say, we're going to discuss this for an hour, and we're going to figure out how we ought to resolve this. But simply by giving people in a training exercise, in a corporate training exercise, the case that they need to discuss, you've already vastly simplified the ethical decision, uh, difficulty of the ethical decision, because you've already told them what the trade-off is and what the ethical dilemma is. In a lot of instances, you know, let's go back to Raja Gupta. The trouble for him is if we were to pull out and say, should you call a hedge fund 23 seconds after a Goldman Sachs board meeting <laughs> and divulge what you learned? 
let's have an hour-long discussion around this. Uh, let's just say that wouldn't be a particularly interesting discussion right, to have. Right. That would be resolved in eight seconds. And he would presumably identify that in eight seconds as being a clearly the wrong thing to do. But in many instances, people just don't see what they're doing is harmful. They don't see the consequences genuinely at the time. Yeah. And so what we need to do is, at least as I see, stop spending time just kind of pontificating and think, doing these exercises, which, if anything, can lead to false confidence that we're actually better at solving yeah. these ethical dilemmas. I wouldn't have called. Really <laughs> right. uh, yeah, we, I mean, we all, we all successfully pass it. You leave the class or the training exercise, and you say, great, I, I, can, I can resolve any of these things when I, when I run into them. What we need to do is basically accept, maybe with a little bit more humility, that when we're actually placed in these compromised positions, like many of these smart, smart executives were, that we might not always do the right thing. That right. pressure, norms, uh, a lot of incentives can drive us to do things that we would never, ever think when we're sitting in the comfort of our, our room right now that we would ever do. Boy, it seems so like that we, would be so valuable. And let's start designing systems that help intercede earlier and, and kind of create that red light even when we might not seat ourselves when we're actually at the time making these decisions. Because there are triggers, and every human has triggers and, you know, insecurities and fears. And, boy, if you could help uh, a, a program in a program, a uh, an MBA program, a student to identify what their triggers are. I mean, it might not be financial triggers that worry them. It might be you know, looking good with others. It might be their in other insecurities, other fears they have. So, I mean, I guess awareness could be a huge uh, lesson to teach. What else yeah. What else could we be just teaching our kids? And how, how should we take this as a teaching tool for our own families, for our own, you know, family members that are in business, or for any of us that think that we're above crime? I think uh, how how easily influenced we are actually by by the surrounding norms. I mean, it's something you know we teach we teach you know our, our kids. You know, you're going to be influenced by who you hang around with on the playground. Right. But it, what's funny is as we get kind of older and older, we we generally don't take that advice quite as seriously. Uh, I mean, the number of people that you know smart smart students that I, I've had that that I see that believe that they can enter a firm that has maybe a, a let's just say, a, a pretty aggressive or maybe even a, a slightly compromised culture. But what you think is that I'm, a, I'm an ethical person. I'm a better person than that. So if anything, I will help change that. It won't change me. Yeah. And this is what we naturally do. And, or, we'll, or even if we, we seek it's a little dodgy and this is not what I want to be a part of, I'll leave. But the trick is, is that more often than not, Two things are going to happen. First, you're probably going to become that culture. Right. Uh, it, it, so, and you're not even going to identify it when you are compromised. But even if you're a, able to identify and say, wow, this is, I, I'm in way too deep, the problem is then you're in the situation of quitting, whistleblowing. It, there's only bad outcomes for you in that case. Oh, yeah. Um, oh, yeah. So I wish we would all take kind of the advice that, you know, we give our, our sons and daughters on the playground and, and actually figure out how to incorporate that more into how we all make our, our career decisions. It's so good. Eugene F. Soltis, thank you so much for your insight, your great work. Again, remember, Eugene is a professor of business administration at Harvard Business School, author of the book, Why They Do It, Inside the Mind of the White Collar Criminal. Powerful, uh, powerful insight, I think, for all of us. You are not above uh, crime. You're not. And it's the second you think you are, you are setting yourself up. We all will fall uh, prey to just those 
trends, those beliefs, those assumptions, those fears, those insecurities. We've got to stay on our toes. And we also can't just allow a white-collar criminal to seem less significant of a criminal than, um, than every other crime going on out there on the streets. Great insight. We'll take a break, friends. When we come back, we'll continue the discussion. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. Welcome back, friends. You know, we were talking white-collar crime, but a bigger crime may be letting Elmo go. Could be. Our cute little red friend. Is it true that they he had an exit interview? It was a mock exit interview. Oh. The idea being if the, the proposed budget goes through okay. and if PBS takes a bunch of cuts – what happens to Elmo? All right. Now I thought they're. I thought they were only showing new content on HBO. Well, the, the, as the article points out, that this is attached to uh, Sesame Street has an HBO deal also, so they're probably in better financial situations. But uh, but what about the other Muppets? Well, well, it's the other Muppets, but also the availability of the show because many rural areas their PBS affiliates would go away because of funding. Hmm. And so kids wouldn't be able to see right. this educational programming, oh. and so there's that involved too. So it's kind of a, a fun parody they put together for – I think the Huffington Post put it together, but All it's right. quite funny. Go ahead. Hey, what's going on? Oh, thanks for coming in, Elmo. Um, we have something very important to discuss. Elmo happy to help. Elmo loves to help. Elmo, uh, it does mean no great joy to inform you that due to recent cuts in government funding to PBS, you are no longer employed by Sesame Street Workshop. Huh? What? Elmo, you're being laid off. Just like that? Elmo's been working at Sesame Street for 32 years! Elmo, Elmo... Y- yes, Elmo well, Elmo, the Trump administration is getting... All arts and education funding from the new congressional budget. But Elmo's rent just went up. Elmo, you're going to land on your feet. Don't but, worry. But Elmo hasn't been unemployed since the 80s. What's going to happen to Elmo's insurance? Elmo has pre-existing condition. Well, you should apply for government health care. Well, you can. <laughs> That's being gutted, too. Uh, where is Elmo supposed to go? Elmo's only real talent is being Elmo. Well, you could take pictures with tourists in Times Square for tips. Huh? <laughs> Are there other monsters fired too? Cookie Monster? Tally Monster? Yes, we let Tally and Cookie go this morning. But what about the kids? They have YouTube, Elmo. YouTube. Okay, Elmo will go bye-bye now. His oh. disdain for YouTube. That's sad. Wow. Elmo is be looking for Elmo and Cookie Monster at a Walmart greeter position yeah. near you. I'm not sure what a Muppet is to do in a, this kind of economy. Soon to be years. Elmo the Hobo. <laughs> That'll be a movie. <laughs> Elmo the Hobo. But it does kind of shine a light on the reality when he said, what about the kids? Like, what about all these kids that don't necessarily have Wi-Fi access to watch YouTube and all the wonderful joys of that and instead had PBS. Yeah. 
<sighs> my, we, I showed this to my kid last night. He's like, where's Elmo going? And like tears. We're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Oh, hold no, on, no, hold no, on. no, 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 no. <laughs> this is just – we'll have HBO, son. Dad will take care of you. Oh, it's sad, you know. you. These decisions hurt people. Yeah. They hurt people. Well, okay. We'll take a break, my friends. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. The Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Welcome back, friends, to The Matt Townsend Show. Happy goof-off day. You know, March 22nd equals... (laughs) Goof-off day. And uh, Jeff, it took you about a half hour to get that that horn off of your bike that was well worth it though yeah i'm lucky i mean luckily we had uh we had the screwdriver terry had to go to his car to get a screwdriver to help you get your yeah because usually i i have to use a penny or one of my fingernails but i cut my nails so we were useless yeah useless it's goof off day folks so step away from all the pressures of everyday life and goof off and if your boss gets mad you know if he threatens to fire you like uh, Elmo, um, then what you just say is, no, 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 no. It's goof-off day. It's goof-off day. I heard it on the Matt Townsend Show. And then see how it goes. I think Don's going to come in today with his rainbow suspenders and yeah. uh, clown shoes. Oh, yeah. Well, it is, it is uh, Tuesday. Is today Tuesday? What day is today? Wednesday. It is. Oh, yeah, darn it. That isn't was that, yesterday. Isn't that great? We missed it. When you think it's Tuesday... Yeah. And then it's Wednesday. We just, it's just, like you gained a day. It's like I gained a day. It's like my, yeah. It happened. It's like finding the bonus fry at the bottom ba- of the bag. But like a handful of them. Yeah. I got a whole day. What am I going to do with it? It's like waking up two hours before your alarm's going to go off, realizing that you still have two more hours of sleep. Oh, I hate that. What? What? I hate that. You're crazy. I'd rather sleep till my alarm. No. no then what, why would I want to wake up and then realize I've got two more hours? There's nothing worse. There, well, there's a lot that's worse. But this is pretty what? bad. What? Cancer. <laughs> this is pretty bad when you sleep through the night without waking up a single time and it, it went by like that and you still feel tired. It's it's a wonderful feeling to wake up in the middle of the night, realize that you still have time left over to sleep, Terry. Oh, uh, no, it's true. Okay. See, you guys, let me just help you here. As somebody who's about 10, 12 years older than both you all, I think. There's a there's a thing that happens to you as you age that might have you up more regularly in the middle of the night. It's true. And when you're Bladder getting size? up, yes. maybe, well, or more, prostate. More of a control issue. Yeah. And so, well, Speak for yourself. <laughs> but when the prostate's waking you up two hours before you're supposed to get up, yeah. it ain't as joyous. I've heard I've heard uh, people talk about this from their own personal experiences. It's you're kind of frustrated, like, oh, come on. So that's kind of where I'm leading. With There's this. like no such thing as sleeping in. 
It's just it's over. Now, the calls are coming in. Too much information. Too much information. Hey, 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 hey. Relax. It's just life. People. It's just, again, on the show, we try to help you through life. And there is a stage of life that, you know, gets you up in the middle of the night. There's the stage you're at, which will be babies crying. And then there's the stage, you know, my stage where it's your prostate crying. Either way, you're getting up in the middle of the night. So nah, we'll uh, – <laughs> Not necessarily. The whole babies crying thing, I don't get up at all. I know, but you're a jerk. It's fine. No, <laughs> I don't hear it. You know what? No one believes me when I say that. I don't know that we've talked about this yet on the show, but I am becoming a big believer in earplugs. Nice. I wear earplugs to bed because I go to bed. Foam ear Uh earplugs. I go to bed about nine or ten, and my whole family's awake. So I put these earplugs in. But you know what it does? It allows me to hear my own body. Yes. And it actually – you can almost hear your heartbeat. Mm-hmm. You might even feel your pulse. Do you use the foam, like yeah. disposable ones? Because uh-huh. you can also buy the higher-end noise-canceling, yeah. Yeah, isolating yeah, ones. Yeah, mine are 33 decibels of sound it cuts out. Okay. But I like the foam you ones because they're hear. soft. Yeah. Gotcha, yeah. But then I, it's weird. I have dreams as I dream throughout the night that, that somebody put nails in my ears and yeah. is hammering nails. Into my mm. So I might need the nicer ones. Yeah, maybe. I don't know. <laughs> but it's a great thing. So just a little recommendation from the Matt Townsend Show. Earplugs, even if no one snores. Have you tried the wax earplugs? No. They have wax earplugs. You know, they just come in little round gobs like that. Yeah, and wax gobs. you... <laughs> You uh, mush them up into your ear so it shapes, it conforms uh-huh. to to your ear. Why? Uh, it's going to be a lot more effective than just the little plugs. Yeah. And you won't have the dreams about some handy I'm serious. Man. Try I'm it. I'm going to try it. Do I've it. never heard of those. I'm going to come in. It'll come like in a little plastic case, uh-huh. and it'll have maybe 12 of those. Yummy. Okay. I'm going to do that. Well, you don't eat them. Oh. Don't eat them. Oh, you don't eat them? No. Okay. Good to know. Hey, uh, we, today we be not only celebrating Goof Off Day and um, Earplug Day, we are also celebrating... Snakes. Snakes. There's some great snake stories. Nice. And whether you like them or not, they can provide a lot of help. If you want a snake massage, we'll be talking about that. Just put a boa constrictor on your back and, uh, yeah, life's good. Whoa, speaking of dreams. I know. Don't watch TV. Don't watch TV. I'm watching Matt. There's a commercial. Talking on the radio. And behind Matt mm-hmm. talking on the radio is Matt talking my, on TV. That's my twin brother, my other friend. And now you're hearing about us talking well, about Matt yeah. talking and talking well, on the TV BYU on the TV. radio. They you, just advertise the show. I know. While we're on the show. So with that. I know. It's pretty cool. That's like when you it's pretty cool. You stand in front of a mirror and there are all those mirror images. Yeah. And you go on forever. Yeah. yeah. It's like that. Wow. Sometimes like I show. feel like this show goes on. Forever. Well, it's like this monologue just keeps going on like those mirrors. <laughs> um, so we'll get to the we'll get to all of the fun about snakes. Plus, we're going to talk about pride. Mm. Is pride something you want to have? A lot of people think it has a negative connotation. It is like the ultimate sin, right? It, it is if it's weaponized. You weaponize your pride, yeah. big problem. You know, yeah, there's nothing worse than a bunch of weaponized lions. My pride, I try not to weaponize them. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, it's good to have pri- uh, a pride. Not a pride. We're talking about pride. 
that feeling of, be, hey, I'm proud about what I do. Oh, I'm very proud of my pride. Okay. They're so cute. He's not getting it. He's missing the point, I think. Um, anyway, we'll get to the talk of pride. Interesting, interesting interview coming up with a researcher that has been studying pride for many years. Uh, really, it is a fascinating learn. So stick with us on that. But first, let's get to the headlines with Terry South. Terry, what's going on? President Trump on Tuesday said the courts aren't helping the administration in its attempts to strengthen the country's vetting procedures to weed out potential terrorists. We're also taking decisive action to improve our vetting procedures. The courts are not helping us, I have to be honest with you. It's ridiculous. Somebody said I should not criticize judges. Okay, I'll criticize judges. Your Supreme Court justice said that. Right. Yeah. <laughs> That's interesting. And also, his, he's had his staff members kind of tell him, hey, this may not be the best approach when we're trying to fight a court case and talking to judges. Yeah. And then you're talking about how yeah. you don't like them or don't like their be quiet. behavior. Trump has criticized judges in Washington who stopped the first executive order on immigration. The judge in Hawaii who stopped the second one. He also shot, uh, took a shot at the judge hearing the Trump University case earlier last year, I believe. The one saying, that he settled for millions of dollars? Yes, that he uh, was questioning his Mexican heritage, if you remember that story. Right. So he's got a track record. Yeah. Uh, also, Trump said, is set to attend a NATO summit in Brussels in May to reaffirm the U.S. commitment to the alliance. White House Press Secretary Sean Spicer confirmed the news late Tuesday. The announcement follows mounting concerns over U.S. commitment to the alliance after Trump repeatedly criticized other member states and once described NATO as obsolete. Do you think all the people at NATO are excited for this visit or are worried? I think they're intrigued because they haven't actually talked to him before. Yeah, They want to be- see exactly... Because the, the, the message seems to shift depending on the day. Right. So let's see where, where he's at. Paul Manafort, remember him? Oh, yeah. The pit boss. The pit boss. The pit boss. Paul Manafort, President Trump's former campaign chairman, secretly worked for Russian a Russian billionaire to greatly benefit the Putin government, according to documents obtained by the Associated Press. The new report directly contradicts the Trump administration and Manafort, who have both alleged that the former campaign operative never worked on behalf of Russian interests. Hold on. Now, these billionaires, what are they called? The, the Oligarchs. The oligarchs. The yes. industry this oligarchs. This was an aluminum oligarch. oligarch. Or aluminum, depending Which, on your Who all report to the government and yes. run the all of the government. CBS News had a, uh, like a, what would they call it? Like a ledger that had names written, and it said Manafort, $75,000. And they went over and talked to some Ukrainian ministers and they're like yeah. yeah here's the information we're looking into it now the report's coming back up again but then but then the trump camp the trump uh, administration is pointing out that he didn't have a very significant role to play he was only the chairman of the election committee yeah he only ran the entire he was the boss. republican national convention and yet right. wasn't he getting paid 10 million a year yes the, the, well he signed for a re a recurring contract yeah yeah for smart. 10 million dollars yeah smart guy so that's all in these records they're looking at. Manafort says he's innocent. Yeah. People want to talk to him. Yeah, Manafort but what about now. Hillary? Yeah, what about her? She has a new haircut. <laughs> okay. Um, also, intelligence has found that Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula is developing ways to hide explosives in batteries and battery compartments. And that's why the U.S. and the U.K. told certain airlines to keep passengers from carrying a large electronics in the cabin. That's the so deal. It's back to the laptops and that. Because they got bomb batteries. Yeah, they had that airplane that was uh, had a piece of the wall blown out in flight right it only killed the bomber but he brought it in in his laptop do you remember the day that they made you turn on your laptop at security you had to show them your laptop turns on and works 
to test the batteries. Well, I know of at least one phone that has an explo- explosive in it. Funny thing about funny thing about the phones, the battery compartments are not big enough to put enough explosives to cause a big right. enough problem. There, it would just blow saying. your hip out. Yeah, yeah, or fry the floor. That's right. the way the Samsung did. And finally, America's most popular dog breed. Yes. Do you know what it is? It's been this uh, way for decades. I, I would say it's a Labrador. It is. Labrador retrievers extended their record run last year in the top spot. Leading the American Kennel Club's new rankings Tuesday for a 26th straight Beautiful year. Beautiful dog. Beautiful dog. Rottweilers are enjoying a the renewed favor. Likes. Some other dogs the have been Rottweiler. striding up the popularity what? ladder. What? The rest of the top 10 in order German Shepherds, Golden Retrievers, Bulldogs, Beagles, French Bulldogs, Poodles, Rottweilers, and Yorkshire Terriers. Really? Along with boxers. No, it's interesting. I wouldn't get any of those. Right. I have allergies. I don't wear boxers. Okay. That's good. Glad we communicated. I think he can't hear that. Maybe it's the wax. Hmm? Remember he was talking about wax in his ears? <laughs> yeah. Maybe he still has wax. When he takes his headphones off, see if you can get a glimpse. I'm not going to look. That's Just, gross. Here, take my pencil. Go over there. Wait, Ew. look at the boxers or the ears? Your ears. We're talking okay. about you. Okay. Sorry. We were kind of mumbling. Hey, um, snake news. We always like to cover snake news. This is cray-cray. Uh, a woman almost crashed her car when a snake slithered from the vent. Yikes. Something more than air came slithering out of a car vent in Florida. Monica Dorsett says she almost crashed her car when a red rat snake crawled crawled ugh, slithered. slithered out of the air conditioner vent as she drove down a highway in Venice. So what do you do when you're heading 65 and a snake starts coming out the vent? Slow down. Mm. She was in traffic on March 10th. She saw the snake slither out of the vent uh, to the left of the steering wheel. She cut across two lanes of traffic and stopped in a parking lot. She says she slammed the door with the snake uh, half in and half out. Her husband then opened the door and the snake fell to the ground. She says he euthanized it. Whoa. Yeah. Snakes in cars. On freeways. So you remember that Sam Jackson movie, Snakes on a Plane? Oh, yeah. Yeah, that was scary. Well, he heard about this story and signed on to do the sequel. Really? And we've already got some footage from the new film, Snakes in a Car. I have had it with these mother-loving snakes in this monkey-fighting car. Take that, snake. Now your history. Did they just spoil the ending to the movie? I don't know. Maybe that's just the beginning. Wow. I love Samuel L. Jackson, though. That guy can act. He has got a, a an eclectic vocabulary. Oh yeah, I don't. I I didn't even know exactly what he said. <laughs> But it sounded bad, but it wasn't. No. Yeah. That's a great show. <laughs> Man. You heard like 30 seconds of it. How did, do you know did if it's they, a great show? I can't remember the name of the show. Did they name the show? Snakes in a Car. Oh, that's scary. See, huh? that is one of those movies that has such a great title because there's no confusion over no. what the movie's about. No, no, exactly. Now you know. So like, hey, is this Snakes on a Vespa? No. 
This is snakes in a car. You know exactly uh-huh. what you're paying for. Right, 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 right. Is this snakes in a um, in a tiny airboat? No, no. That's a different show. Snakes in a car. They should have called it euthanized. But then you wouldn't know what that was. It might just be a documentary. Right. That's true. You have to spell it out for the audience these days. Just put it on the nose. Tell them what it is. That's really good. And again, Samuel L. Jackson. Fantastic. Hey, a German salon uses a python to give customers a neck massage. Yeah. Tight. (laughs) Neck. A hairdresser in Germany has started using an unusual employee to give his customers neck massages rather than a person. Frank Dolan uses a 13-year-old python. Mm. This is all at Hair Mode Team in Salon in Dresden. He was inspired to start the practice when he saw a, a similar technique being used during a trip to South Africa. However, the massages are only available to customers two days a week. You don't want to overwork a python. No. You only make them stronger. Right. Dolan said visitors to the salon can only have the massage by appointment as the size of the snake's terrarium means it cannot live in the shop full time. So it's a commuter snake, which is why we're finding them more and more in cars. Wow, I think you're getting to the bottom of this. They got to get they got to yeah. get to work. I hope these are supervised massages and not just the receptionist saying, "Just wait in this room and Dr. Slither will be with you in a moment." <laughs> yeah, just take your just if you could unrobe and just sit face down on the table, that'd be great. Or, if you hear a, face down If you table. hear it Can you don't, imagine? Don't, that's normal. Don't don't but worry. But if you go look up the video of um snake massages, it's incredibly unsettling. And just to help you all, we will put it on our Twitter page, at Dr. Matt Show. You're going to want to see this. It's a public service. We'll help you out. It's, it's pretty ugly. And I don't see how there's any comfort in this because these are cold-blooded animals, right? So right. Their, their bodies would be cold. Yeah, and you're warm, so it'll want to hang out. And it'll want to nuzzle. Are these snake masseuses also uh, ordained ministers? They're too? called snissus. Okay. Are they ordained ministers? Yeah, the people that wrangle them in are. Whatever you do, don't do the treatment with the rattlesnakes. I hear that's really bad. It'll rattle you up. It'll totally rattle you. Uh, so you go to this, you go, you sit down, and they bring a Monty Python, and then the Monty Python, which is four feet long. A Monty Python? Yeah, Mon- okay. <laughs> Monty Python. I'm like, what? The name of the Python's Monty. Oh, okay. They bring in the Monty Python. Um, and the snake, four feet long, 90% muscle, just starts working your body. Hmm. And oh, Deep tissue. That's good. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Be sure that it doesn't get around your neck. I think the uh, – That's another problem. I think the snake masseuse – I think her name is Olga. Oh, really? The snake masseuse handler? No, the snake itself. Oh. Olga. Oh, because this said Monty. Oh, that's why you were saying Monty Python. Yeah. You don't think I make that stuff up, do you? Always. I'm a highly trained professional. All right. We'll take a break, folks. When we come back, we're going to be talking about pride. Pride. Should you take pride? Or is it the beginning of your fall? Interesting interview up next. Stick with us. Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. Have you ever wondered how some of the greatest leaders became so great? 
What explains the massive success of Steve Jobs, a man with great ideas but weak programming skills and a questionable managerial style? Or how did Dean Karnazes, the famed uh, ultramarathon man, transform himself from a directionless desk jockey into an extreme athlete who once ran 50 marathons in 50 days? As the renowned emotion researcher Jessica Tracy reveals in the book Take Pride, each of these super achievers has been motivated by an often maligned emotion, pride. Jessica is here with us this morning to talk to us more about her book, Take Pride, Why the Deadliest Sin Holds the Secret to Human Success and What We Can Learn from It. Jessica Tracy, thank you again for being with us today. Oh, thanks for having me. This is, um, to me, this is such an interesting topic because we a lot of times think of pride as a negative, as a negative thing. Is pride so negative? (laughs) Yeah, you know, I think it's funny. I think a lot of people completely see it that way. Other people see it as a positive thing and then are sort of surprised to hear about the negative side of it. Yeah. And what we found is actually pride is both. There there are two different kinds of pride. Um, so the negative kind that you referred to, we call that hubristic pride, building off the Greek word hubris, which yeah. is sort of overweening ego, arrogance. And that's really what that kind of pride is, right? It's the pride that people feel when it's not just that they think they, they think they're great or good, but they think they're better than everyone else, right? They have this superiority about them. And that kind of pride isn't necessarily or isn't often based on actual accomplishments. It's based more on self-aggrandizement, kind of building yourself up to be more than you actually are, probably in response to deep-seated feelings of insecurity and shame. So for a lot of people, when they kind of feel bad about themselves, those feelings are super painful, right? It's, it's hard to feel bad about yourself. Right. So we bury those feelings. We suppress them. And then we replace them with these exaggerated sort of heightened feelings of, of self-aggrandizement and, and grandiosity. And, and that's hubristic pride. Hmm. Um, but that, that is not all that pride is. There is this other side of pride, too. We call that authentic pride to kind of make the point that it's based on more authentic, a more authentic sense of self, real accomplishments, uh, a focus on what's really important to, to us, the kind of person we want to be and, and, um, and who that person is. And when we're able to focus on that stuff, on, on who we really are, who we want to be, and the good things about ourselves, then we feel this more genuine sense of pride. And, and that leads to all kinds of positive outcomes. And so, yeah, so it once, I guess, seems more, much more aligned to our lasting, enduring principles, and one is maybe a coping mechanism. Yeah, I think that's exactly right, that authentic pride really is about how how we actually want to be in the world, how we want to be in our relationships, uh, how we want to be at work, right? If we want to, you know, strive to work hard or our hobbies, right? If we, we care a lot about art or sports or whatever it is we care about, working hard toward those kinds of things, toward those achievements, authentic pride is what motivates us to do that. Yeah. You're right. The other kind of pride I think really is about coping with, with insecurity. How does a professor of psychology start down the path to pride and, and learning about pride, where did, where did it, you know, pique your interest? Um, you know, I think when I was in grad school, um, I was interested in emotions. That was, that's a big topic in psychology and it's been a big topic for a while. And, uh, particularly when I was in grad school, that was kind of a hot thing. And so my advisor and I were studying emotions and he, his focus was on the self and self-esteem and narcissism. And there really had been almost no research at that time on the emotions that are most closely linked to, to self emotions, like, shame and guilt and pride. And there had been a bit on shame and guilt, because yeah. psychologists always like to study the negative, um, but almost nothing on pride. And so it was sort of this open door for us to, to think about. 
So where does it come from? What is – because it is such a basic human emotion and I mean I guess we feel it so many different ways. Watching our child you know, accomplish a goal, we might feel that pride or um, you know, you yourself being able to do something you didn't think you could do, running a marathon or whatever. What, what, what is it? What is its root? Where does it come from, I guess, emotionally? And, and what is the research telling us? Yeah, so we, we found that it seems to be a basic part of human nature, which is to say we evolved to experience pride as a species. Um, we found that people all over the world uh, show the pride expression, the nonverbal display that we show when we feel pride, which basically involves pushing out your chest, kind of a, getting this expansive posture, tilting your head up a bit, and smiling a little bit. That display, that nonverbal display, is identified as pride by people all over the world. We traveled to Burkina Faso, which is uh, in West Africa, and we studied people living in a small-scale traditional society there, kind of you know living in these little rural villages, mud huts, no electricity or plumbing, totally cut off from what we would describe as the Western world, and we show them photos of people displaying pride, and they identify them in the same way that Americans do, right? Mm. They say, yeah, that's that's pride. And then we, we did a study of the Olympics, and we found that people from countries all over the world respond to success. They were winning a judo match, uh, in this case, by showing this display. People from every country do it. There was no cultural differences, no gender differences. It didn't matter where you were from, but no matter what, you always showed this display if you won. And then we looked at blind athletes, right? So people who who can't, who couldn't have learned to show this expression from watching others. And in particular, we had a sample of congenitally blind athletes, so hmm. people who'd never been able to see, so really had no way of learning to show the pride expression, you know, in, in any way. I mean, you could say, well, maybe someone kind of walked them through it or taught them it, but that's sort of unlikely. And we saw the same thing in those people. So here are people who've never seen anyone else show this display, and when they win an Olympic match they engage in the same behaviors. And to me, that's really compelling evidence that this is part of our nature, right? Yeah. It's something we're sort of hardwired to do in this situation. It's universal. And, and so then what purpose would it serve? Because uh, I'm well, assuming there's a utility to it, right? So absolutely, what yeah. is the purpose of the of the pride that we feel that makes us act and, 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 and do the pride response? Yeah, well, so the ultimate sort of evolutionary purpose seems to be to attain higher status, right, to get ahead in society, to get high rank. And and that happens in a number of ways. So I think the best way, the way that we probably all strive for and we think is good is when we when we want to feel pride, what that does is it motivates us to work hard, right? Mm-hmm. And so Dean Karnaz, as you mentioned, um, and, and I, give that, I give him as an example in my book, he's someone who throughout his 20s and, and um, early life was kind of working hard to achieve in the business world. But his true love was running. And as a child and as a teenager, he loved to just run. And so, you know, he got an MBA. He did really well. He was doing well in his career. But it wasn't giving him that sense of fulfillment and meaning and sense of kind of being who he really believed himself to be through the business life. And so when he turned 30, he kind of had this epiphany that he was not feeling pride. He wasn't, a, he wasn't feeling that sense of authentic pride that he wanted to feel in himself and that I think we're all hardwired to want to feel. And so he made a change and he started running. And that night, the night of his 30th birthday, he actually literally ran from the bar that he'd been in to celebrate his birthday for about 30 miles down the wow. coast of California. Huh. Yeah. And at that point, he wasn't running regularly. So you can imagine how yeah. he felt, you know, the next couple of days, I think he couldn't walk for a while. But he, he realized in that night that that's what he was meant to do, that that's what he wanted to be doing, and that's the thing that gave him a real sense of pride. And as a result of that night, he changed his life around. He eventually quit his business career and became a full-time runner. And that's not something that's really realistic for no. most of us. 
but the idea that you can figure out what you need to do in your life to feel a sense of pride and then go after that thing, that's what makes us achieve in all kinds of wonderful ways that, you know, at, at a proximal level, we would say at a level just for ourselves, makes us feel good about ourselves, sort of this emotional benefit, but an ultimate evolutionary level makes us achieve status, right? Makes us climb the ranks of the social ladder, makes others in our group respect us and look up to us. Now, is that, um, so I guess that's why you call pride may hold the secret to human success. It's the, yes, mo- it's kind exactly. of, the, it's the, it's, it's the internal motivator. That's right. That's exactly right. That the reason that we are motivated to do all the things we do that bring us success is because we want to feel pride. Now, sometimes that can be hubristic pride. Sometimes we do things because we want others to look up to us. We want others to admire us. We want to show that we're better than others. We want to kind of show off. That's the desire for hubristic pride. Hmm. That also motivates certain kinds of success. Typically different ones, though, right? So, Because those kinds of successes aren't really so much about our own intrinsic sense of self and the kind of person we want to be. They're more about what we think others want of us or, you know, dominating over others, taking, taking control. And it turns out hubristic pride actually motivates power or actually leads people to attain power as well. But it's less a kind of power that's based on prestige and others' respect and more on what we would call dominance. So basically having control over others, being able to influence others, but not because others look up to you, more because others are sort of afraid of you. Hmm. Right? You intimidate others. Oh, interesting. So I guess that's a that's a really interesting part of this is can you you can have pride about something that is antisocial, like yeah. uh, like a, a gang a gang <laughs> banger could go commit a crime, but still have pride about the crime he got away with. Yeah, very much so. And, and you know, honestly, I wouldn't say that's always hubristic pride. Right. Right. The societies that we're in are what determine what we feel proud of, right? Sure. And so if you're in a society that, you know, respects those kinds of beliefs and values that a gang might respect, you're going to feel proud of yourself when you live up to those values. Now, to the extent that you're also in a larger, you know, broader society that know, you know, where it holds values like, well, you know, uh, say, you're, say you're a drug dealer and you know that, you know, bringing drugs into a community where there's children is really dangerous for children. I think that's something that many drug dealers find probably very problematic, right? I mean, right. I, I recently saw Moonlight, and that was really nicely illustrated there, where you had this drug dealer who was supporting his family and taking care of the people in his life in a way that was, you know, he obviously felt a great deal of pride about, but you also saw he felt conflicted because he was bringing drugs into this community and that was hurting other people's families right. um, because of addiction. So I think it gets really complicated in those ways. Interesting. It's, it's, um, it's, it's interesting to me to think of how we, we kind of make good or bad a very basic natural emotion, like, like mm-hmm. that we would even deem it bad, but it's because it is something as you talk about it, we've, we've evolved to feel we've, We've evolved to feel yeah, this you know, pride. I would say a lot of a lot of the things that we evolve to feel or do aren't necessarily good for society or the kind of society we want to build. Um, you know, just because we evolved to experience a particular urge or motivation doesn't mean that's something we absolutely should do. I think that's a common sort of fallacy. Well, if it's natural, it's good. Right, right. There's a lot of things that are natural that actually aren't good if if we define good in terms of the kind of society we want to build or how we want to treat each other. And often being a good person means overriding some of those instincts. Hmm. The nice thing about pride is that it does have these two different kinds, these two different sides to it. And all the research that we've done suggests that authentic pride 
is both natural and good in the sense of helping us build the kind of society or become the kind of people that we want to become. Yeah, that's powerful. Let's take a break. We're speaking again with Jessica Tracy. She's a professor of psychology at the University of British Columbia and a Canadian Institute uh, and the Canadian Institute for Health Research. Um, And what we are talking about is her book, Take Pride, Why the Deadliest Sin Holds the Secret to Human Success. Stick with us, folks, helping you be the good in the world, starting with pride today. We'll be right back. Welcome back, everybody, to The Matt Townsend Show. Today we're speaking with Jessica Tracy. She's the author of the book Take Pride, Why the Deadliest Sin Holds the Secret to Human Success. Jessica is a professor of psychology at the University of British Columbia and is teaching us that, uh, you know, many times pride is misunderstood. It's it's a very basic, um, I think, universal expression that all humans have. And uh, Jess, thanks again for being with us. Oh, thanks for having me. So, as as you talk about pride, it, it is such a it's such a natural uh, and and especially the two prides of the two types of pride, the authentic authentic pride that you've discussed, which is kind of more based on our natural um, beliefs, our natural uh, desires to become better, to to get ahead in life, versus the hubristic pride, which is trying to just simply be better than everybody else and self aggrandizement. What what how do we use it? How do we use pride to to lead us and to take us uh, further on and, and really to become the best human being we can be? Well, you know, I think the issue is that, you know, both kinds of pride are seem to be, as far as we know, natural, right? So feeling hubristic pride, there's nothing unnatural about that. And we probably evolved to experience hubristic pride, too, because it does have an evolutionary benefit in that it does get us power. The thing is, it's a kind of power that I think most of us want to avoid, right? We don't, most of us don't want to have influence over others just because others are afraid of us, right? right. Intimidated by us. Most of us want have power over others to the extent that we do because others look up to us and respect us and want to learn from us. We want to be seen as people who are leaders and chosen to be leaders because we actually contribute something of value to the group. And that's a really important distinction. Um, and so the key then is to really nurture authentic pride, and that's the kind of pride that gets us that kind of power, which we call prestige, and to try to avoid hubristic pride, which as much as it's part of our natural instincts and and something we evolved to experience, it gets us this kind of power that we refer to as dominance, um, which, you know, may be evolutionarily beneficial for us in the sense that it helps us attain influence over others, which is, you know, ultimately going to help us uh, replicate our genes but probably doesn't help us get the kind of lives that we actually want to live, right? Hmm. We, can, we can choose to, to live a certain kind of life, and most of us, I think, want to live the life of a prestigious leader who's respected and uh, generally, you know, it has all these kind of positive outcomes in terms of well-being and mental health, and not to live the life of a dominant leader who tends to be hated, you know, really disliked, followed out of fear rather than admiration, and dominant people tend to have a lot of negative mental health outcomes. They tend to be anxious and depressed and, and that sort of thing. Mm. Um, and so I think the key is to try to experience authentic pride. To, to, and that means really thinking about who you are, who you want to be, what kind of person you want to be, and what you need to do to get there. And then, and then focusing on doing those things. And you see that leaders, um, Steve Jobs and others, You've you've kind of highlighted some of them and their their ways that they've used pride to get there. Give us some examples of where you've seen people uh, take it to another level. 
Yeah, well, Steve Jobs is a really nice example, I think, because he's someone who, you know, based on all descriptions of him as as a leader, he was kind of hated, right? I mean, people who didn't know him thought he was a genius, and, and I think he was a genius in many ways, but the people who actually had to work with him found him to be really difficult to work with, right? He was incredibly domineering, intimidating. You know, he bossed people around. He told them they were idiots. Um, he he sort of created this perception. He would often tell people to do things in a situ- in ways that his the people who worked for him, the programmers, said was simply not possible, mm. right? This is, this is not, they called it the reality distortion field because he would ask for something that they said, this is not reality. He can't <laughs> actually be asking us to get this done in yeah. the way that he needs it done. But then because they felt that force from him and they were so scared, they ended up often getting it done or getting something close to it done. So he sort of he distorted reality in a sense. And it was effective in many ways, but he was very much disliked. You know, people really didn't enjoy working for him. Um, and yet I think while he's a great example of someone who, who used dominance to get ahead, clearly at some point in his life early on, he also had some prestige, right? He had these great ideas. He wasn't this, you know, powerful you know, big, intimidating guy. He was sort of the skinny, smart guy who had some great ideas and had a way of making people, such as programmers who worked with him, um, like his his best friend and, you know, sort of coworker Steve Wozniak, really look up to him in certain ways, right? And so um, a lot of, you know, the the recent biographies that have been written about him and movies made about his life really portray that relationship where he was the guy with the big ideas and Woz really looked up to him and admired him for that. He then, over time, kind of manipulated Waz in certain ways and, and managed to get ahead uh, through dominance. So he's someone who, really, I think, started with prestige and then perhaps because he felt a sense of insecurity about his own programming abilities, switched over to dominance. Can you can you think of an example where somebody, even their ultimate goal wasn't prestige? It was more altruism. And is, is altruism, is, can you be altruistic without pride? Yeah, you know, I think that's such a good question, and that's something scholars have kind of debated about forever, yeah. right? Is alt- is altruism really altruistic? Are we ever really doing yeah. it? Are we seeking people? prestige still? Right, exactly. I would say um, it's not that you have to be seeking prestige, and I think there are many people who are altruistic because it feels good to help others. And that's not, they're not thinking, oh, and if I do this, I'm going to be respected and, and looked up to. I really don't think that's what's driving most people at approximate level. It's the level of what's going on in our heads. Yeah. But, but I think part of what motivates altruism is a desire to feel good or avoid feeling, feeling guilt, right? Mm-hmm. I give to others. And then the homeless person I see on the street doesn't make me feel so bad about myself if, if I give him some money, right? Right. Um, or perhaps even it makes me feel good. I, you know, I, I work at a shelter and, and that makes me feel good about myself. And that's pride. That's authentic pride. Yeah. I and mean, there's nothing wrong with that. We evolved to feel it. And I think one benefit of evolving to feel it is that it does make us take care of those who need who need help, right? And that's that's a massive way that our societies work and function is that we feel pride in taking care of others, and then it allows us to help others. Ultimately, that probably will bring us prestige. It will bring us respect in the eyes of others, and that does get us power, which allows us to help replicate our genes. But no one's thinking about that when they're doing mm, it. Right. No one's, I think altruists aren't typically thinking, oh, I'm, if, I'm, if I show these altruistic behaviors, it's going to help me be respected in, our, in my society. And if they are, if that's really what they're thinking about rather than their own intrinsic sense of self, then I think it's hubristic pride, and mm-hmm. it's, it's not going to have the same kind of outcomes. So in a way, like um, as I as a grandparent, if I saw my grandbaby's very young, but if I saw my grandbaby, you know, score a goal after trying so hard and making it work, that pride I feel for her um, is 
it, it is just somewhat it was created it, it, i i'd evolved this ability to fill the pride through uh you know prestige a desire to have prestige but really in that moment i just feel nothing but joy for her oh yeah Absolutely. No, and I mean, really, the prestige, you don't even have to be aware. Yeah, you're not aware of it. It's just, and I think most right. people are not aware of it. No. That's, evolution takes care of that, right? Yeah. That's the ultimate benefit. What we feel in that moment is, you can, you know, joy for her, pride in, in her, you know, or shared pride, and, and, you know, maybe you taught her how to, how to score that goal or something like that. And all that's great because that's going to motivate you to support her, you know, to be there for her, all that kind of thing. Hmm. Now, what would be the opposite then of prestige pride? Well, so the opposite is hubristic pride. Oh, and that's yeah. The, What's sorry, the opposite of pride in general? Shame? Oh, so, well, shame is, is really kind of the opposite, yeah. right? Um, and that, you know, feeling bad about yourself, feeling like you're not good enough. Hmm. Um, yeah. And, and that... And that's you know, debilitating. Yeah. Than humility. Yeah. Shame is really problematic. We haven't found a whole lot. Researchers haven't found much to... Much good, good about, about shame. shame. No, no. If anything, I mean, I have some research on shame um, in, in recovering alcoholics, and you would think, well, if they feel shame about their addiction, they're going to change their behaviors. But in fact, we found exactly the opposite. The more shame they, they feel about their addiction, the more likely they are to relapse and, and go back to drinking. Yeah. yeah. Is um, it so overall, then, is pride, um, is pride generally then referential to myself? Is pride always referring back to me? Does that make sense uh, yeah. as a question? Is it, I think so. You know, I mean, I guess um, I can take pride in everyone else, but if my right. overall goal, I mean, subje- subconsciously, is to put myself at a higher level, then pride tends to always refer. I guess maybe all emotion always refers back to us. Well, I mean, I guess what I would say is it refers to me, but but what me means can be quite oh, broad. Sure, right. So you can think about your individual self, or you can think about your relational self. So when you're proud of your your grandchild, for example, that's a relational self. That's almost seeing yourself in that person who you feel so connected to. You can feel that with your partner as well. And then we have much bigger groups, right? You can feel pride in your, in your local sports team. Yeah, right. You identify with that group or your country, right? And that's, that's pride too. And then it's thinking about your group at the level, the level mm. of self at the group, right? And, and where you fit in the group and how you aid the group. And... Sure, yeah. sure, yeah. Is talk about um, like I guess developmentally, if we wanted to improve our pride, make sure we're moving it from kind of the hubristic to the more authentic pride. What are some things we can do to maybe self-evaluate, be more self-aware, and change? Yeah, I mean, I think you know, like I said, the key is to focus on who you want to be, and then think about what specific actions you need to take to become that person, right? So rather than thinking about, oh, you know, last time I I, um, scored a goal, everyone cheered for me, that felt awesome. I bet if I tell other people about that goal, they're going to cheer more, and that's going to feel really great. That's the wrong way to go, right? Mm, That's that's focusing on other people and how they approve of you or don't approve of you, and that's the key to hubristic pride, right? When you once you start focusing on what other people think and other people's acclaim of you, you're not really focusing on what you're doing for yourself. And so, anytime you have that thought of like, oh, I bet if I tell more people about the success, I bet if I post it on social media you're going the wrong way in terms of getting authentic pride. Yeah. The right way to go is to think, okay, well, I scored that goal and that felt really great. So I bet if I score mo- more goals, that will feel even better. And so I'm going to work really hard on my skills and practice every day and work really hard toward those achievements. Um, so thinking about what you can do to kind of keep having those success experiences, that's really the key toward authentic pride. That's powerful. And where do you see collectively, I mean, you, I could almost sense that 
we we as an as a country as as um, a political party as whatever we could we could be carried away in either hubristic hubristic pride or authentic pride and to our detriment or to our elevation how do we um is that possible really i guess to and do you see it happening in our country where we're so divided is it our pride that keeps us divided is it our pride that makes us not come together you know, it's a really great question. Um, my guess is that's part of it, but you know, it's tough. I think that um, I think that really, if we start to feel hubristic pride in our in our sense of self, which I think some leaders do, that can be really problematic. Right. Um, and to the extent that followers take hubristic pride in the leader and say, you know, this guy's the best, he's amazing, he's better than everyone else. I think that can also be problematic. I don't know that that happens a lot. I think that followers tend to see leaders in a more realistic light. Right. Um, you know, so even if even if we have a president who brags and, and tells us things that aren't true about his past successes, I think even the people who support him kind of know that. that. Yeah. Yeah, they kind of know that, and they like other things about him. You know, and and so I think I think followers and you know people who aren't leaders are, are people who aren't experiencing hubristic pride are better at seeing what's true about others' hubris, and then they can choose and say, you know what, this guy is too arrogant. I don't like that. He thinks he's too great. We need to not follow him. We need to kind of form a coalition or fight against him. Or they can say, you know what, he thinks he's really great, but who cares? He's getting things done or, you know, he's, he's doing this other thing that's important so I can let that go. Right, right. Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. Interesting insight. Well, Jessica, we thank you so much for your time and uh, your great work. The book, again, is Take Pride, Why the Deadliest Sin Holds the Secret to Human Success. And again, remember, Jessica is a professor of psychology at the University of British Columbia. And um, just go check out the book. Good stuff. Great learning. We are going to take a break, folks. When we come back, continue the journey, helping you become the best in the world that you can become. Stick with us. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. So it's it's good to have good pride, bad to have bad pride. Did you get the lesson, Jeffrey? I've been trying to teach it to you all break. I tell my pride all the time that they are good. <laughs> yeah, you keep thinking of like a lion's pride, but uh, not what we're talking about. Hey, McKenna Bouse is in the house. Hey. What's up, McKenna? McKenna's here. She's We call her the mind bender. We, uh, we want her as our producer. She comes in and she tries to throw a curveball at us yeah. and teach us something that maybe we th- we don't think should happen. But it it actually makes sense when you think like let's let that happen. For example, we ought to just let we we need to keep our kids to sit still. They need to sit still in class. I don't know. Feet how, on the ground, sit still. I don't know how many times I heard that growing up. Like you know, sit still, just go and focus on what you need to get done. Yeah. Never was something I was all that good at. Um, and it turns out that it's better to not be sitting still. Well, and... you got to move. Exactly. A lot of times moving, doesn't it get your brain going? Exactly. That is one of the biggest benefits of getting up and moving. You know, a lot of times we hear about, in the workplace at least, oh, you know, you need to get up, be more active, the whole sitting is killing us thing. Yeah. And we talk about it very much from this health point of view. But in terms of just productivity – you know, in schools with, you know, kids all the way through into the workforce, we're not wired to be sitting still right. 
all the time. And so we actually do much better when we're incorporating physical activity throughout the day. Well, like they tell you to focus. I mean, there's people that don't focus by sitting and focusing. They, there's, you put a really stellar athlete and make him just sit and focus all day. They may not be as good of an athlete. They, yeah. they, aren't there kinesthetic learners? There's visual learners. There's auditory learners. We're all learning different ways. Oh, yeah. I mean, you ask me to sit still for too long, I will fall asleep. And I guarantee I'm doing a lot less learning when I'm asleep yeah. than I would be if I was up and moving. Um, but it's it's just shown that there's a lot to be gained. And I think part of it, too, is just the fact that when we're up and moving, we're more entertained. And that puts our mind sort of on this better edge to be able to engage more with what we may be hearing or reading or anything there. I had uh, sons that would go to learn – they'd go to baseball practice and then the coach would teach them how to bat. And the coach would basically teach there's only one way to hit a ball and this is the way. And you got to do it this way because this is the only way to hit this ball. And if you want to go pro, you're going to have to be able to do this. And I'm thinking – Which is not true because everybody's got their own strategy. Their own strategy. But one of the things that – and my son was hitting really well and then this coach taught him how to hit and then he couldn't hit. Oh, that's awful. And part of it – and then it creates all this stress and then he couldn't hit and then more stress and he couldn't hit. But part of it was because the coach was telling him to hold his bat still. Hold it steady. Hmm. Just still. Don't move it. And um, I taught him, no, 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 because he, he, couldn't, he couldn't see it fast enough. So we just let him start moving the bat and he just started wiggling the bat a little bit mm-hmm. and wiggling his knee a little bit. And just those two things immediately picked up his batting again because it took his mind off of the pitch. And he just let his body naturally hit the ball. It let him relax. Uh-huh, instead of having to overthink the pitch. Yeah. It's, Let him move. It, it's so true. And it doesn't even take that much movement yeah. in order to get these benefits. You know, three to five minutes of just some sort of activity, whether that's like standing up and stretching yeah. or, you know, walking around. Just everybody you, go get a piece of paper. Yeah. Just Something let like them that. go get a piece of paper. It gives you 45 minutes of optimized Does learning. it really? So five I, minutes of action gives you 45 minutes yeah, of Yeah, it's a huge payoff for the amount of time right. that you're putting in. But the problem is, is there's still a lot of schools, a lot of workplaces that say, you know, we have a limited time in the day. And they say we're so prioritized mm. on academics and just getting the material in, sort of force feeding yeah. in a way that we don't have time for this. And, you know, a common thing that's said is, oh, well, they have gym class when it comes to kids in school. No. But in a 50-minute gym class, a, a large chunk of that time is sent, spent, you know, you're standing there getting instructions. Yeah. And you maybe only have like 15 minutes of My real active engagement. My wife teaches gym class in elementary school and it's three days a week. It's not, it's not enough. It's three days, right. So, no, it's not enough. And the recesses are cut short. I mean, and then you get to junior high, you don't get, you get nothing. gym time like that. I mean, you get to play in a gym maybe twice a week. Yeah. And so how do you get moving then? Exactly. And it's something that not just kids need, but we need now in the workplace, just like little things that you can incorporate, whether it's, you know, just doing little stretches at your desk, taking the stairs instead of the elevator, yeah. um, have walking meetings. You know, if there's people that you need to talk to, Grab them, yeah. walk around, do laps around the building while you idea. chat. Go to a farther away bathroom. Um, you know, instead of sending an email to somebody, 
go find their desk, walk to them and talk in person. Yeah. Those little changes, which are still being productive, are going to let you be more active and are going to boost your, you know, what you're able to do throughout the rest of the day. No, I love that. And you know what I've found? I just try to drink more water because that has me moving to the bathroom every 40 minutes. There you go. No, it was more frequently than that the other day. Yeah, because I was just... I was totally flushing my system. You were going during interviews and I was stepping in and nobody knew. Nobody knew. Nobody even knew. Nobody knew. (laughs) Too much information. (laughs) But that's – you got to keep moving and Mm -hmm. find some way to do it and even find a way to move while just standing there. Yeah. Just stand up once in a while. Stand up. Do, you know, knee flexes. Anything like that. McKenna Bowes is her name. She's the mind bender. It's okay to move around, folks. You don't have to just sit still with your arms folded. I mean, that, there might be a time for that. Not always. Thanks, McKenna. We will take a break. Stick with us, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. the matt townsend show your guide on the side follow dr matt on twitter at dr matt show call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU this is the matt townsend show dr matt townsend now on byu radio byu radio welcome back friends to the matt townsend show dr matt here your coach your guide on this side happy days folks it's uh it's wednesday hump day you made it halfway through the week life is good Life is great. Life is fantastic. And today, by the way, goof-off day. As if you didn't need uh, an excuse, now you've got the perfect excuse. You are free to goof off today. Wait. Wow. That's messy. And goofy. You're going to have to clean that up. You can now waste an hour or two. Just, you know, if your boss gets on your case, just say, hey, it's goof-off day. Well, it's, now that I have your permission, I'm going to do oh, just that. Oh, but I'm that. not your boss. <laughs> no one's going to blame me for your behavior. Mm-mm. Anywho, got a great uh, show coming up. We'll be talking about how uh, kids are now controlling their parents these days. Be replaying an interview with Dr. Leonard Sachs. And if we're not careful, parents, we may be creating monsters. You know, how many times? Have you heard that? But the kids, many of them, are leading the show, so we'll get to that fun news. Plus, I'm going to give you a little update that one of our Supreme Court justices is probably working out harder than you. And like physically? Yeah. Really? And you won't believe who it is. 83-year-old Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. She is working out like crazy. So everyone always talks about, like, she might be, you know, she might retire because, well, whatever, her health. You know what? After we talk about her workout, you're going to, you will feel embarrassed. The woman can bench press 70 pounds at 83. (sighs) Hang on to your hat. We'll talk about that. Also, um, some fun news um, about if you want to buy a town. We've been talking a lot about my sim simulated city on Sim City, Town Town Abbey, up to about seventy eight thousand citizens, ninety four percent happiness level. 
We're killing it. Taxes yeah. are coming in. I now have a port open. Life Alternative is, facts. Life is really good. But if you want to buy your own town, you can go to Oregon and you can buy a town. We'll be talking about that. They've got a spare one there. Just three, about almost $4 million you can own a town. We'll get to that fun topic. Plus, our good brethren from BYU Sports Nation will be on at the, uh, in about 40 minutes to talk about their show coming up at the top of the hour. And, of course, we'll do a hero of the day for the Matt Townsend Show Hero. But first to the headlines with, all, uh, with our favorite hero. Terry South. Terry, what's up? House Republican leaders say they have a plan to hold a floor vote on the American Health Care Act on Thursday, regardless of the outcome, despite conceding late Tuesday that they lack the votes to pass the bill. With all Democrats opposed, Republicans can lose 21 votes and still push the Obamacare replacement through. But according to the Hill's tally, the House Freedom Caucus leaders, there are at least 22 firm no's plus six more House Republicans leaning towards voting against the legislation. The New York Times, citing a GOP aide, says as many as 36 Republicans are opposed to the bill or are not yet swayed in its favor. President Trump met with congressional leaders on Tuesday and is holding more meetings today in hopes of securing the enough votes so this thing will pass and they won't uh, you know, fail in their endeavor. Good news. To mess up health care can you possibly pass something that would fix health care um i think you could pass something that would enhance certain parts of it but it's so complicated yeah how do you pass something that enhances everything they tried it before that didn't work now they're trying it again doesn't yeah. seem like it's going in the right direction Rand paul's got some great ideas yeah not included well <laughs> He's not someone people like to cooperate with because yeah. he doesn't like to cooperate with others. you got to hey. play with others. you got to play in the sandbox. There you go. Neil Gorsuch, the uh, judge that's currently going through his second day of confirmation hearings before the Senate on Tuesday, was praised by Republicans for his strong conservative record as a federal appeals court judge in Colorado and brings with him a sterling academic pedigree. Over the course of a day and a half of hearings, he was uh, praised on his views regarding Roe versus Wade, Trump's travel ban, and whether he'd uphold it at the Supreme Court. Uh, workers' rights, and more. He did want to establish one fact. What? Here's here's the judge. I I know people have their views personally about lots of Supreme Court decisions and about a lot of other things. We're all human beings. I get that. Um, I'm I'm not an algorithm. They haven't yet replaced judges with algorithms. We're all human beings, but the judge's job is to put that stuff aside and approach the law as you find it. And that's part of the precedent of the United States Supreme Court that I'm sworn as a sitting judge to give the full weight and respect to due precedent. There you go. He wants you to know he's not a robot. He's a human. Yeah. I've got feelings. Just get that on the record. Yeah. He did. I cut out the part, but he mentioned, he goes, he thinks eBay is working on it. I don't know what eBay would be working on. They try to sell things, not create... Judges, judges, but oh, it, it was or, a weird, yeah, weird moment. Um, other news: the Walt Disney Company being accused of stealing a veteran screenwriter's idea for its animated film Zootopia. A federal lawsuit filed on Tuesday alleged, according to the screenwriter Gary Goldman, Disney took the characters' designs, themes, dialogue, and names Zootopia directly from a project he first developed in 2000 and allegedly pitched twice to Disney executives, getting rejected both times in 2000 and in 2009. Disney lawyers say Mr. Goldman's lawsuit is riddled with patently false allegations. Wow. Notice this is coming out after Zootopia won the Oscar for Best Animated Feature. Yeah. That's interesting timing. Hmm. You got some splaining to do. 
And finally, the U.S. has earned its first trip to the World Baseball Classic Championship game after beating Japan 2-1 on Tuesday. Team USA will face Puerto Rico on Wednesday at Dodger Stadium in a winner-take-all final. Cool. Super cool. Dodger Stadium, you've been wanting to go. I want to go to Dodger Stadium. I bet you didn't even know the World Baseball Classic was going on. I, I saw it, and I but I didn't know what it was. Yeah, lots of people have no idea. It sounds classic. Well, they call it that. But is it – so would you would you rather go to spring training hmm. or the World Classic? It seems the like – The World Classic. The World Classic, they're having a lot of fun. I mean last night someone uh, hit a home run – uh, and his teammate was on the other team out in the outfield playing for the other – like the his other major country. league baseball teammate was playing How for cool. the other country. That guy jumped up and stole the ball and they both kind of stopped and pointed at each other and then the guy <laughs> went, you know, got, got out. But you know that, that sort of playful yeah, sort yeah. of respect, they're having fun even though there's competition. Where in major league baseball you do anything and it's some sort of offense and there's a fight and it's stupid. So wait, he prevented him from getting the home the run? jumped over the wall, took the run. ball back in and the, the batter kind of cool. acknowledged that. His teammate made a good play. What a great benefit to live in a or in a state like that, in a city like L.A., where you can do that, and you you get to have all of these opportunities. Run your kid to the ballpark, go down, see the Kardashians. You know, oh, there you go, yeah. at a preview or whatever. I didn't even think of that. Are the yeah. aspect yeah. of this whole thing? They're on exhibit. Yeah. Then go to the beach, yeah. ride some waves. You know, see Jack Nicholson working. Beverly Hills. Yeah. Such a great place. Because they, you know, they're very accessible. Oh, all yeah. of them. They're very accessible. So here's the deal. You may have heard uh, Judge Gorsuch is he's getting the cross-examination now by, this, by the Senate. Yes. And um, it's a pretty neat experience. But one of the things that was brought up yesterday is somebody said that he could very well – I think it was Reince Priebus – this judge could very well be in there changing law or creating law for 40 years. So yeah. the health of these justices, it's a big deal. So what if I told you that Ruth Bader Ginsburg, do you remember in 2013 she had a scare with pancreatic cancer? And she saw a picture where she said she looked like a survivor of Auschwitz. Hmm. And she didn't like it. So right after she got healthier from her cancer, she decided she started – she wanted to start working out. The woman now at 83, the justice can now do 20 push-ups, which Jeff and I have been working on push-ups. And, uh, but check out this workout she does. She starts with a five-minute warm-up on the elliptical machine every day. She can bench press 70 pounds. She does three sets of most exercises with 10 to 13 reps each. Um, she, so she gets bench pressing. Um, After that, she moves on to leg curls, leg presses, chest flies, lateral pull downs, which she all does on it. She does them all on a machine. She has three sets of those. Then listen to this. It just keeps going. You'd think the woman would just quit. Um, Then one leg squats followed by push-ups on the ground, no knees on the push-ups. She can do 20 of those. Planks are next. She does 30 seconds of standard planks, 30 seconds of side planks on each side. After that, it's uh, on to the arm and shoulder exercises using an exercise ball and then squats with the dumbbell curls while pinning the exercise ball up against the wall. This woman is incredible. And it doesn't end there, folks. Justice Ginsburg then does step-ups, leg exercises while holding on uh, to, a, to a staff for balance, upside-down basso ball squats. Hmm. And she wraps up by sitting on a bench 
uh, although uh, different than the bench she's normally sitting on, while holding a medicine ball, standing up, tossing it to her trainer and sitting back down. All at the age of 83 years old. It takes one hour. Pretty cool. Now I'm jealous. I got to get going. If, if Ruth Bader Ginsburg could beat me in a leg wrestle, I thought I'd, I thought I'd snap her. Now no. That would be a, quite the matchup. <laughs> that would be like Billie Jean King and the other guy. Oh, she'd, she'd school me at this rate. The other guy. The other guy. Even though she's a woman. Ooh. I didn't mean to say, and the other guy. And the guy. And the guy. That's what I meant. Yeah. Hey, um, you guys jealous about my SimCity yet? Uh, I asked my wife, should I play SimCity? She went, absolutely not. It's it's really so, – it's interesting. Yeah. I only hit it about twice a day and when I do that, I collect a lot of taxes. Yep. You're just there to get the money. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But my people are happy, 94% happy. Green faces, which is something you wouldn't expect to be happy. I think my wife's fear is that I would develop some sort of um, – Addiction? No, just sort of in-depth narrative about the city. Yeah, and I'd like make up stories about just really, really contentious city council right, meetings. Right, right, right. Yeah, yeah. And she would hear all this, and then and at then some she... point, just tell me. Well, I, I'd start into it, and she wouldn't really grasp on that I was talking about my game. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then halfway through, she goes, "You're talking about your game again." Knock You're not it even off. a mayor. You're yeah. not even a real mayor. I used to do that with a uh, a uh, video game, football game that I played. Oh yeah, yeah. When I was drafting players, and yeah. having contract disputes and all that, she just would listen and she goes, "This is a video game, right?" Well, so. maybe instead of doing SimCity, right. you ought to do. You ought to just go to Tiller Town. It's called Tiller, okay, in Oregon, and it's a town for sale. Oh, the price three point five million dollars for an extra three hundred and fifty. You can have the old school too. Oh wow! Mm. By the way. Schools are hard to get on SimCity because you have to make a lot of money to make mm-hmm. a school. So if I were you, three hundred and fifty grand may be a really good offer. So is your is your population uneducated? No. Oh. They 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 were educated outside of my city. Oh, and they okay. moved to my city. Could right. we just get the school? No, probably mm. not. The most uh, mostly uninhabited, unincorporated town. About 225 miles south of Portland, so it's close to Portland, really. Originally went up for sale in 2015, but that did not include the building that used to house the school. Could you sell it as a suburb of Portland? Probably not at 250 miles. Mm-hmm. It's a 250-acre, 100-hectare town. Okay. The current deal at a reduced price includes six houses and an apartment – and industrial and commercial lots and a building that once used to house the gas station and the general store. Oh, wow. So you've got a good start. Yeah. Can't anything be considered a, an industrial or commercial lot? Here's a flat piece of land. Let's build, just say it's commercial you land. You could build a building or a high-rise, a residential high-rise. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, but aside from the family that owns it and is selling the town, there really are only two residents that remain in Tiller itself. Oh, wow. So you would have to populate it yourself. You'd have to hmm. make it interesting enough that people would want to live in Tiller. How would you attract business to a town like that? I'd put up a sign. Okay. Open for business? Yep. Open for business. That always gets them. And then something like Tiller, you'll never have a better weekend. Wow. Tiller? Um, I noticed that one of the two residents in that town is a teacher yeah. of that school. Mm-hmm. Is, 
Does she come included in the deal? She's or a school marm. Can we choose not to hire her if we don't want to? Ooh. Well, yeah, but I don't know why you do that. That would be awkward. Yeah. yeah. She lives right next door. How you're going to uh, yeah, Gladys. Um, your services aren't needed anymore. We we bought the school, but we're not going to need your services. You could be the crossing guard. <laughs> yeah, but that no one crosses, right? Hmm. This might be a tough sell because it's, it's Sim City. Like, like you're saying, it's near Portland, but not really. It's, it's not 250 miles away, so it's you can't even like. But it is it is a town, and I bet yeah. could, once you own it, you can call it anything you want. Right. You could call it Townton Abbey. Hmm. I mean, there would be a we have a lawsuit because I already own that. What are the taxes involved of owning a town? Probably nothing. You could write everything off. You're the mayor. You could everything. You know, I don't yeah. pay any taxes personally for my city. <laughs> hmm. Downtown right. Abbey, the one on your phone. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. It sounds like there needs to be an investigation there. Yeah, it sounds like yeah. some fraudulent behavior there. Oh no, no, no. no it's fine. It's all right. fine. It's. It's all it's all legit. It's in the city. I the cops they're all with me. Well, yeah. I did uh, get so the cops going, are so. in your pocket is what you meant to say. Oh yeah, my is phone. What you said. My phone always goes in my pocket. So yeah, everyone's oh. in my pocket. Wow. Again, back to the fraud. Good times. Really good times. By the way, too, just a little side note. I'm also taking up hunting. Deer hunter 2017. I've uh, you're back to that. I'm doing a lot of Texas hunting. Okay. Well. Uh, did Quite you say deer, deer hunting? Deer hunting. Huh? Well, I, hunt I would be careful. Now. I mean, you remember the last time deer there was like a deer hunter. Hunts. Yeah. Then Russian roulette became a part of it, and uh, things didn't end so well. No, no, no. Because this, this, it's not just deer hunting. I hunt everything on my phone app. And what's great, once you shoot them, you don't have to clean them or pick them up. They just disappear in about two seconds. Oh, wow. It's neat. Very really. efficient. Yeah. <laughs> Just trying to stay healthy. Uh, you know, it's fun stuff, folks. And you, if you don't want to buy the town, don't buy the town. Just okay. get the app. It's free. Well, now that I know that's an option, I won't buy it. Okay, good. <laughs> Before you're getting out your checkbook. Hey, we'll take a break, folks. Coming up next, we're talking parenting. Are we letting the kids control us as parents? we got to figure out a way to, uh, you know, help not hurt the kids in our parenting style. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Where are the children nowadays? You know, sometimes it seems like we live in a society of adults. Just some of them haven't grown their back, uh, their uh, all their teeth yet. Oh, that's so sad. Have you noticed that the kids today make so many of their life's decisions? They choose what to watch in, on social media, what to have for dinner, when they go to bed. Dr. Leonard Sachs, author of a new book, The Collapse of Parenting, says that treating our kids like grown-ups may lead children and teenagers to become less resilient less physically fit, and more likely to become anxious or depressed, and, by the way, far more fragile compared to kids from the same demographics 30 years ago. So it's not just about letting them make decisions or, you know, kind of abandoning it. At some point, we've got to still take the role as a parent 
uh, to help our child through their development. He joins us now today from Pennsylvania to discuss how parenting is collapsing in our own homes. Dr. Leonard Sachs, welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Thanks for inviting me. You bet. Great to have you. Talk to us. Uh, what do you mean? You, you've got the book, The Collapse or uh, Collapse of Parenting. What, what's, where do you see the collapse? Huh. Well, I'm a practicing family doctor, and I see it in the office every day. I see uh, parents who, I, one family, the, the parents are doing their son's homework uh, so that he can play video games uh, past midnight, <laughs> and they're doing this night after night after night. That's an extreme case, but... In many, many homes, parents, look, you mentioned letting kids decide. It's fine to let, let kids decide in some domains, sure, but not in others. And this is where so many American parents are now confused. For example, is it okay for my 14-year-old daughter to take her cell phone to bed with her? Many, many American parents let the child or teenager decide. And that's a decision that should not be in the hands of the right. child because... What, what happens is this girl's taking her phone to bed with her, and at midnight, she's getting a text, oh, my goodness, Emily and Jason have broken up. This is big news. And she's up for an hour exchanging text messages with True. her friend, and she is sleep-deprived. Look, at 9 o'clock at night, you take the phone from your daughter. You don't ask her. You, this is the rule. You take the phone from her, you turn it off, you put it in the charger, and the charger stays in the parent's bedroom. She can have it back tomorrow morning. Right. And you you have to do this. This is not your child's job. It's but but they job. need it. What, what are you supposed <laughs> to say tomorrow at school? Right. When your friend says, hey, I texted you last night at midnight, how come you didn't answer? Is she supposed to say, well, researchers at Stanford have found that sleep deprivation increases the risk of depression <laughs> among teens. Come on, that's ridiculous. Right. You have to allow her to say, hey, my evil parents take my phone every night at 9. They won't let me have it back to the next morning. That's right. Now you know you're in the right position, right? Once she's bemoaning and mad at you, then you know you're the right parent. Because it's such a great point. But then our kids play us. Like my kids, when we try to take their phone away, they're like, I need it to wake up. Yes, I use it as my alarm clock. I, exactly. Remind your child that they still make actual alarm clocks. Yeah, and we have one, and it's in your room. It's not, That's it's right. not expensive. Yeah. Uh, and the child may push back. And in some cases, the child may say, I, I hate you. You're going to totally ruin my whole life. And so many parents are so terrified that their child will withdraw their affection, that they're not doing their job as parents. Your job as a parent is, number one, keep your child safe. Number two, teach your child right and wrong. And, if you're, and other things besides, of course, but those are two of the top ones. And if you're, not, if you're doing your job, if you are doing your job, then your child may not always approve. If one of your rules is you can't pick out on ice cream before you eat supper, your child may not approve, but that's why they have parents. Mm. And when parents abdicate their authority, a lot of bad things happen. You see an explosion in the proportion of kids who are obese. You see an explosion in the proportion of kids who are anxious and depressed. You see a decline in the academic achievement of American kids relative to kids in other countries. And all of these different phenomena, as I show in the book, are related to this one underlying dynamic, the collapse of parenting. And part, I guess you hit it on the head, it's, it's a fear. Parents are parenting out of fear versus... I mean, I guess their original goal, which is to to raise a healthy kid. Well, I think fear is a little a little strong, and it doesn't doesn't feel like quite the right thing yeah. to me. What what I think is closer is that parents are unsure, 
and insecure and not really certain what they should be doing as parents in so many domains. You know, we didn't have cell phones growing up. How do you know what you should be doing as a parent? Well, you think back to your own childhood. If your parents did it right, you try and do it the way they did. But in this case, our own childhood gives us no guide. We didn't have uh, Instagram or cell phones when we were growing up. So what happens is a lot of parents look to what other parents are doing. And when I speak to parents, I say, don't do that, because <laughs> your neighbor's just as clueless as the rest of us. You need to look to the research, and there is actually a lot of good scholarly research to guide parents' decisions in answers to questions like, at what age is it okay for a child to have a cell phone? And how much should I know about what my daughter's doing on Instagram? You don't have to guess. There is a lot of good research. And, and again, a big motivation for writing the book was to share this research with parents. I love that, too, because one parent in a neighborhood makes a decision to give their cell phone, a child a cell phone at eight or whatever, and everyone else is going to end up hearing about it. And many well, are just going to give in. And kids know how to play this right. game. But don't be afraid to do the right thing. And, you know, one parent, uh, actually in Sandy, Utah, just outside South Lake Yeah, right where we are, yeah. I, I spoke there. Uh, she was telling me how she said to her 11-year-old daughter, she said, I'm, I'm taking your phone from you. And it's not because you did anything wrong. This is not a punishment. But I'm just concerned about how you're spending so much time glued to that phone, texting and Snapchatting. So you're not going to have a phone anymore, period. And her daughter was a little unhappy but got over it. And her daughter's friends, were like, they didn't have a problem. They were like, oh, you know her. She's the one with the crazy mom who took her cell phone away. <laughs> but the real pushback, and this was just outside Salt Lake City, Utah, the real pushback came from the other parents. Yeah. The parents of the other girls really attacked this woman. She told me that wherever she goes, the other... Uh, other parents will come up to her and say, how can you deprive your daughter that way? You're making her the odd girl out. You're depriving her of all these experiences. And, it, and what this woman said to me is she thinks the other parents are so insecure, have so little confidence about what they're doing and their own decision to give cell phones to their 10 and 11-year-olds that they're attacking her because they see a parent who's acting as a parent should. Mm. I mean, then, yeah, then it's kind of – it's almost like it's it's out of guilt maybe or in, and their own lack of – or inability to be that strong. Their own insecurity. Yeah, their insecurity. Wow. And, and really, I guess th then all of a sudden we're only as strong as those around us, I mean, until we can well, And I think so many stand parents up. are confused about what's important. So many parents want their kids to be popular. And again, in the book, I show the data. Look, being popular at age 13 is not a good predictor of good <laughs> outcomes. On the contrary, there's now good evidence that the most popular kid at middle school at age 13 is actually less likely. Ten years down the road, when researchers follow these kids ten years down the road, that kid is less likely to be gainfully employed, less likely to be confident. And uh, look, the, the skill set you need to be popular in the United States at 13 years of age in middle school is all about the culture of disrespect. Uh, and you don't want your kid to be a master of the culture of disrespect. So don't worry about popularity and tell your kid, look, you're not going to be the most popular kid because to be the most popular kid means being disrespectful, means doing things that I'm not going to allow you to do. Hmm. So deal with it. That is great. Uh, that's actually great news, isn't it? I mean, because yeah, all and, of a sudden, it takes a great burden off kids. Yeah, they don't have to worry how many likes they get on Instagram, or how many people are following them. 
uh, that's a great burden off their backs because one of the unspoken messages of, of American popular culture right now, by which I mean the culture of Justin Bieber, Miley Cyrus, Kim Kardashian, <laughs> is that it really matters how many people like your Instagram. And it doesn't. It doesn't. It doesn't. Uh, we're speaking with Dr. Leonard Sachs. He has his Ph.D. and an M.D. He's the author of the book, The Collapse of Parenting. Uh, we'll take a break, come back. More with Dr. Leonard Sachs in just a minute. You can also go to his website, leonardsachs.com, leonardsachs.com. Stick with us, folks. We'll be right back learning how to uh, you know, strengthen, support, build up your, uh, your parenting skills and tools and avoid the parenting collapse. Stick with us. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. On the line with us is Dr. Leonard Sachs. Uh, he is the author of the book, The Collapse of Parenting. He is a Ph.D. and an M.D., and he, uh, on his website, leonardsachs.com, um, you can get all of his books and information. Today he's teaching us about the collapse of parenting. Dr. Sachs, welcome back to the show. Thank you. Great to have you. Talk to us um, a little bit more about your book and what impact do you sense that social media is having on this collapse of parenting? Well, in the book I talk about how American culture now indoctrinates kids in the idea that you have to be awesome and how harmful that is and how the antidote to the... uh, culture of of being awesome is the virtue of humility and how important it is for parents to teach the virtue of humility to their kids and how humility leads to contentment and real happiness and social media as kids use social media is the opposite of humility Mm. Uh, social media is all about me here i am at the party having a great time here I am picking my nose. It mm-hmm. doesn't have to be, you know, and defenders of social media say, oh, you can use social media to raise money for the, for the poor and feed the homeless. Well, you can, but that's <laughs> not how yeah. American kids are using it. The way, and this is, again, not a guess. I cite lots of research. There are good scientists now studying how American kids use social media, and it's all about selfies and getting lots of likes on Instagram, and it profoundly undermines teaching the virtue of of humility, which is all about being interested in other people, not about broadcasting yourself. It's so true, and and you can, you know, you can show great examples and try to do it. Except again, the kids are going to do it their way. That's right, and preaching accomplishes very little. And this is why, when I speak to parents, I say you must guide and govern your kids' use of the device. You have to install apps like My Mobile Watchdog or Net Nanny Mobile on your kids' cell phone. So that when they take a photo, the moment they take that photo, they know that that photo is going to your phone and your laptop. You will see every photo they take before they do anything with it. And you tell your daughter, if you take any inappropriate photo, you will lose the device indefinitely. Hmm. That's how you teach virtue. You inculcate virtue by making it a matter of habit, by saying, if you don't want, if you look, you can't, if you take an inappropriate photo, you're going to lose your device. You don't preach about it. You just lay down the rules. Well, yeah, and and then 
it and then create the systems and that that's life right life is about yeah, rules life is about systems it's an excuse you know in my own experience a girl i knew well from my own practice uh, her friend also a 14 year old girl said to her hey how about i take some pictures of you taking your clothes off you take some pictures of me taking my clothes off we'll send them to our boyfriends and this girl responded well i can't do that because my parents have put this app on my phone go ahead and so she handed her phone to her friend and her friend took a picture of some flowers and they called mom at work and say hey miss kirkpatrick you see those uh, you, you see the picture we just took and and uh, mom's looking at yeah uh, let's see it's a vase of flowers um gardenias mm. and the woman said the girl said oh uh, all right thanks bye <laughs> and then the girl who had proposed the strip tease said to her friend the girl i know said wow she said I wish my parents cared about me that much. They have no idea what I do with my phone. So it's got to be your job as the parent to put these things in place, to give your kid an excuse to say no. That's great. And um, and, and, and protect them and, and, and kind of nurture them and keep them safe while their maturity is not there to make these decisions. Well, that's right. And, you know, there have been so many stories recently about how good kids in good neighborhoods are sexting. And, again, they're kids. If you're going to give your child a phone that can take a picture and send it anywhere, then you, the parent, have an obligation to guide and govern how your kid is using that phone. And that's got to go beyond preaching. You've got to explain to them, look, if you're going to have this phone, then there's going to be apps on it that's going to enable me to see what you're doing. And uh, you need to use the phone responsibly. If you don't, you'll lose the phone. If if parents had done that, then these scandals we're hearing about in Colorado and elsewhere would not have happened. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And and again, with technology too, the kids many times might be much more savvy, much more educated on how to use it, what to do with it, than a lot of us parents. So we got to pay attention to that. Well, and that's why it's important to have these programs. I don't expect parents to go out and become IT experts, but there's good programs out there. I have no affiliation with any of these programs, but Net Nanny Mobile, My Mobile Watchdog, they will report to you, the programs report to you, what sites your kids are visiting and what they're doing there. Because, again, many of these sites now are designed to deceive parents. In the Colorado case, there was a, an app that looked like a calculator. And if you look at your kid's phone, you see a calculator app, and you don't, you don't worry about it. But if you enter a four-digit passcode, it becomes a photo-sharing app. Mm. And that's how these kids in Colorado were sharing all these uh, obscene photos, and parents were clueless. Wow. We've got about uh, about two minutes left here. What would you say, Dr. Sachs, is, is maybe the one thing that as parents we should be focusing on? If there's one thing that would be the most leveraged, you know, sure. response? The answer or- is to prioritize the family. Uh, so many American parents are picking up their kids at school and driving them to soccer practice and then driving them to a play date with their friend, and there's no family meal at home. And the unintended message is that the family meal at home is the lowest priority. The family meal at home should be the highest priority. And it comes before friends. Cancel the play date. Make a family date instead. Hmm. That's true. Because we're communicating one way or another, right? If I'm not there, I'm saying something. Screens, no screens at the dinner table. At the dinner table, it's about face-to-face communication. No earbuds in the car. When you're driving in the car with your child, they shouldn't be listening to Justin Bieber. <laughs> they should be listening to you, and you should be listening to them. 
turn off the screens, turn off the devices. When you're with your child, you should be with your child. There should not be a screen uh, between you and the child. That's great stuff. Great information. Again, um, the book is uh, called The Collapse of Parenting. You can find out more about it on his on uh, Dr. Leonard Sachs's website, leonardsachs.com. And we appreciate you, Dr. Sachs. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks for inviting me. Great, great insight. Uh, parents, it's, it's life. And uh, you can be strong and still uh, loving. In fact, sometimes being strong, as we're learning, is love. Having rules shows love. It shows that you want to protect these beautiful, innocent uh, resources, these, the, 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 these beautiful children. And you, there's so many tools. There's so many solutions. There's so many resources we could use to protect these kids. Let's, uh, let's engage and let's start um, taking back our families. Great stuff. We'll take a break, folks. When we come back, visit our good buddies down there at BYU Sports Nation. See what's coming up on their show today. Stick with us, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. It's that time. It's that time as we count down for the big uh, show, BYU Sports Nation, top of the hour. Let's send it down to our friends, Spencer and Jerem. Hello, gentlemen. Hello, Matthew. Sports. How are you, children? Oh, you know, just uh, just doing our thing. In just the OB, man. Hanging out, just hanging out. Yep. Hey, uh, I got a question that you wanted me to remind um, you. You wanted you reminded me that I need to bring it up when when Jerem was in town. Are you ready? I am ready. Tickets to the Portland game? (laughs) Yesterday we talked about the fact that a news vice president of a news agency took the the, uh, jersey from Tom Brady, stole it, and they found it apparently uh, in his apartment. So we then talked about what are the things that they've ever taken. And and everyone said nobody took anything, but you (laughs) might want to ask Jerem. Matthew was accusing me of com- committing some federal offenses. <laughs> so do, you, do oh, yeah. you have something you need to explain, Jaron? So my dad was a bum. <laughs> he never took me to a Portland Trailblazers game growing up. I loved the Trailblazers. They went yeah. to the finals twice. Oh, yeah, they were awesome. It was great. So I was at my friend's, the Parhams, one day. I'm six, right? Six years old. I, oh, boy. I'm without sin. Before the age of accountability. Yeah. Yeah, so right. I see my, I, I think my dad's being a bum, and I want to go to a Trailblazers game. <laughs> and at school, they had been giving out tickets to games. Oh, boy. For different contests. So I thought, oh, I've got my alibi. So I stole two tickets from Jim Parham. Okay? <laughs> I then went to the game with my dad. I explained, oh, I won these tickets at school. Because I couldn't make up a lie, I guess. So we go to the game, and Jim Parham goes to the game as well to see who... Sitting in the seats. Sitting in the seats. Well... Lo and behold, it's me and my dad. Uh, they talk. They figure it out. My dad leaves because he's so embarrassed, so I don't even see the game. I cry all the way home. I never went to a Portland Trailblazer game as a kid. So the yeah. first game I went to was during, you know, like Christmas break. Right. My wife's from Portland. We went and saw Jimmer Fredette play his first road game in the NBA. Wow. And I was at a Blazers game, albeit not in Memorial yeah. Coliseum. I was in the Rose Garden. And without they, Petty they Larceny. Yeah. Without Petty Larceny. I was six, though. Okay, well, were you? So, yeah. but, but, Did you I know. say my dad's a bum? Yeah. <laughs> Had I mentioned that yet? Yeah. Boy, that sounds tragic. That's a, But that's when you'll remember right there. That's a Before lesson. Before the age of accountability, though. Yeah, sure. Yeah, sure. 
We always say that, like that matters. But what about the parums? <laughs> it does. What it about does the parums? With God, but with the law, yeah. not necessarily. Right? I know this kind poor of. family. They yeah. may have missed a really important game for them. See, Jerem's was Jerem's was good though. He had his alibi. Like when I stole baseball cards when I was a little kid, like my parents were like, "Where did you get this?" Super authentic, limited edition Daryl Strawberry rookie <laughs> baseball card, Spencer. It's like, oh, uh, I got it in a pack of cards I bought. <laughs> At the Sev. At the Sev. I no. just lucked out, Dad. I just oh. I just found the one card. Hey, are you guys uh, following World Baseball Classic? Are you into Absolutely. that? Absolutely. Yeah, I watched, I watched the whole game, like the last two games for the U.S. You guys are baseball fanatics. I have the baseball itch again. Because I went to spring training. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I've, I'm all in, man. Well, you might want to get that checked because uh, there are. There, I heard there were some things going around spring training. If you've well, got that itch. Uh oh. Yeah. Anywho, um, why? It seems like USA should be doing really. I mean, they're doing very well this year, but it seems like they should always do well in this. But I guess they it's, don't have their best players playing. Is that so. what it is? They're okay. good, but Bryce Harper's not playing. Mike okay. Trout's not playing. Clint Kershaw's not. Maybe playing. Maybe that's why they're winning. Why aren't they playing? They don't have they, to. Yeah, they don't have to. Well, I know, but are you part of the world or aren't you? It's, it's a it world takes classic. It away from their training with their team. Okay. So, so, I mean, some guys, because it's California Phoenix, are playing and then one day and then they'll, like, go to Phoenix and play. But, yeah, it's, it's down to Puerto Rico and the U.S., and it's tonight. This is big time. Yeah, it's it's gonna be cool. I'm gonna watch that. This is great. Um, anything you guys, you're gonna do your show thing today, yes, right? Yes, we're going to sing the Puerto Rico song from West Side Story. Are you really? <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Yeah, I don't even remember how that. Puerto one Rico. <laughs> yeah, That's really good. It's a great musical. Uh, I like that South Korean accent. That hey, you that threw. wasn't a South Korean accent. I rolled my R. Yeah, Koreans can't roll their R. Oh, can't they? No. That's good. They say really. Really? Ah, really? <laughs> <laughs> Two years you've lived. You lived there on your vacation trip. My yes, uh, I did was work. Jerem lived in port in uh, Brazil. Yep. In mm-hmm. on Porto his trip, Allegri. Yeah, and Allegri. Allegri. Porto Allegri. So on the show today, yes. Are you going to be doing? You're going to be doing some of these. You know, these accents. This, these accents are going to be singing songs. It sounds like. Yeah. You're yeah. Going, may- Maybe There's Jer- always a song that's sung. Maybe Jerem should point. do his the the entire show in his Ty Detmer voice. And I'm listen. I'm working hard on my Bill Walton. Okay, I am pra- literally <laughs> practicing in the car. Are you really? Yes. Do you want to give us a taste? <laughs> no, no, I don't because it's save really it, bad right now. Save it for the show, and then tomorrow <laughs> I want to hear on the show. <laughs> yeah. Before. I remember when I was at Berkeley. I could smell colors. I could taste sounds. It was unbelievable. That is him. That is great. <laughs> That is really, really good. good. Oh, you're going to want to listen to that. You should do the accent now, Bill. You, you step aside. <laughs> you can do an accent of Bill Walton? Oh, no. <laughs> I got to work. I got some work Bill to do. Bill Walton speaking Korean. Korean. This That's is the that. Conference of Champions, Dave Pash. This is no truck stop conference. <laughs> <laughs> I love like, the, that is great. the whistle. I like the whistle. <laughs> That's great. Oh, that is good. See, this is entertainment, guys. This is what we don't get uh, every other hour on BYU Radio, right? <laughs> talk about good. Talk now, we're about actually going to do something positive today, Matt. It's we're going to talk time. about BYU what? football and the positive changes and improvements that happen from year one 
to year two and why it is significant specifically to college football in that year. We're asking everyone to tell us what you think is the biggest difference for Kalani Satake now in year number two with his staff and crew. Great. That's good. Plus. And positive. We'll go down to spring football practice, talk to uh, a player, hopefully. We're scheduled to do so. Yeah. Uh, Andrew Idy will join us in studio. He was an offensive lineman last year. He's getting ready for the draft. He's in incredible shape. Could he be a free agent signing in the NFL or sleeper late draft pick or something? Mm. We'll see. Also, it's rivalry game day for BYU softball and against... The Utah Utes, no less, Ooh. who are ranked number 11 in the country. And Matt it's Townsend. a little rainy. A little They're rainy. coming to Provo. Oh. Is it scheduled to rain? Are you going to rain delay? Thing? 30% chance. Mm. That's, that's not great. We'll see. Uh-oh. 30% maybe, chance. Maybe I'd bring could, a book if I was you, just in case. Seems like it uh, might give an advantage to a hometown team. Always ready. This will be one, the one night where it's like, oh, yeah, we start at 5 and finish at 1124. <laughs> but is Utah ready for the elevation change? <laughs> That's right. That's right. <laughs> it's a decrease, isn't it? Are they ready for the <laughs> yeah. cougar tell? Wait till they try Can that they handle the bar. lower elevation? <laughs> when they come down from the big city. They can't breathe. Uh, well, that's they a too well. that's a great show, and um, on top of it, B- Bill Walton will yeah. apparently be on the show. Yeah. Bill might join us in, in spirit, at least. Hey, guys, he's always in spirit. He is. I love it. I think it's going. I I, I already rate your show an A plus plus. Wow. Yep. I'm going to go put that on. What is it? IMDb right now. I'm going to do it right now. Okay. Get, get another. I can't uh, believe you haven't done it already. Well, I have. I've done it under three other names. Oh, okay. I'm going to now put it a fourth. Create another account. Yeah, yeah I get it. Uh-huh. Very cool. I've used all my email accounts, so <laughs> I'm out. Okay, guys, have a great show. Knock them dead. Goodbye. Kill it. That's great. Boy, they do Bill Walton imitations. Can you do a Bill Walton imitation? It was he on the Waltons? Uh, no. Then no. Basketball player Bill Walton? Mm, no. Okay. Uh, what imitations can, can you do an impersonation of somebody? Anybody? Key. You've never heard me do any impersonations on uh-uh. the show? Mm-mm. Okay. Have you ever tried Samuel L. Jackson? No, never. Isn't he in a new movie? What's that movie about snakes that he's in? Uh, it's called Snakes in a Car? I have had it with these mother-loving snakes in this monkey-fighting car. Now you history. Yeah. I don't think I could do that. No. No. That's the Samuel L. Jackson. The. The. Uh, everybody loves snakes on planes, right? Snakes on a plane, is that what it's called? But it's snakes on in a car. That takes it to a whole other level. And it's it's off of a story we told earlier about a lady that was driving a car and a snake came out of the the air conditioner vent while she was driving. A red snake, apparently. I don't remember handling it that well when it happened to me. Oh, yeah. You had a snake come out? Yes. Are you all right? You seem, you seem a little stressed now. Well... I tried to humanely put him down. Did you use the car door? Yes. Mm. Sad. Let me just change the subject. 
Okay. Just so you feel better. Mm-hmm. I don't want I don't want to end the show on a downer. Um, a poop scooper gets okay. probation for using fake IDs and badges. A man whose company scoops up pet poop has been placed on probation for two years, fined five hundred dollars for buying fake Secret Service identification cards and badges online to impress women on a dating site. You mean the the poop business didn't do it? No. So he needed to like up his game. I I I'm also with the Secret Service, and on the weekends I do the pooper thing. Uh, Christopher DeLorio, um, 54, of Greensburg, was sentenced Monday by a federal judge in Pittsburgh. He had pleaded guilty in November to fraudulently using an official seal uh, but acknowledged behavior in two other counts dismissed Monday, flashing an ID card during a traffic stop and trying to use a Secret Service badge to get a government rate for a hotel room. Wow. Your Honor, I'm not a bad man. I am a dumb man. Diorio told U.S. District Judge Nora Barry Fisher, what I did was truly stupid, and I'm very sorry for that. You know what I say when people ask me for badges? What? I don't need no stinking badges. Okay. That's how you say it? Does that work for you? All the time. All the time. Anyway, so, you know, if you're, if you're a pooper scooper and you want to up your game... Don't fake ID, especially the Secret Service. They will catch you. Our hero of the day is a Texas businesswoman that has been unmasked as the Good Samaritan who saved a distraught father in a bind. The man was checking in for a flight earlier this month at Omaha's Epley Airfield with his toddler when he hit a snag. The agent asked him if the girl's uh, asked him the girl's age, and when he replied she just turned two, the agent told him she could not fly without a ticket. Fellow traveler Kevin Leslie described what happened next. The man was confused because he was under the impression she could ride for free. He mentioned he couldn't afford to rebook this flight or get her ticket with such short notice. He stepped aside and tried to make a few calls, hugging his daughter. You could tell that they were both heartbroken. That's when a woman stepped in, asked him what was wrong, and told the agent she wanted to purchase the ticket. The agent questioned whether the woman realized how expensive the ticket was. 700 and something dollars, she replied, as she handed over a credit card and paid the $749 fare. The father hugged her, offering to pay her back. Don't worry about it, she replied. The hero has been revealed as Debbie Bolton, co-founder and global sales chief at Norwex, a company that makes chemical-free home and personal care products, and reports the uh, reported the Omaha World Herald. So how cool is that? She sees the need, flips out her checkbook or credit card, and pays for it. That's a hero, my friend. Again, didn't have to do it. Didn't need the PR. They had to track her down to find out about it. Heroes, folks, they're among us. You are one of them. We'll be back again tomorrow to give you more ideas, information to live longer and love stronger. Until then, let's take care of each other. We'll talk again tomorrow.